And I thought, you know, this is stuff that English speakers, people who can't read Japanese, should know about. And I want to get this out there so that a new audience can take a look at it with their own eyes and come to their own conclusions and、uh, give their own input on these things. I wanted to contribute something. So、mm. if I was able to do that, then I'm very happy. <laughs> This is one of the weirder stories from Japan, right? For sure. Jimenken is basically means in Japanese the human-faced dog. The mysterious suicide forest is、um, the real name of it is Aokigahara, which means the sea of trees. Ah,、oh, yes, the hibagon is、um, a Japanese-owned, homegrown Bigfoot. Throughout Ainu folklore, they've had the story of the Akaro Kamui, which is、uh, basically a huge—I mean, massive red, almost octopus-like creature. There's just enough weirdness to kind of link them together in a way that just makes people scratch their heads. You know, like I want to know what went on over there. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season Nine. Very excited about this installment of the program for a number of reasons, really. First of all, I've always been fascinated by Japan. It's been one of those places. It's like my bucket list of places I'd like to visit.、Uh, that and the pyramids. And I've always wanted to do a show about Japan and Japanese myths and legends on BOA Audio. But I've noticed over the years that it's just increasingly difficult to find somebody that knows these myths and legends、uh, and speaks English that we can get on the program to talk about it. And then. A few years back, I discovered the work of one Brent Swanser, who writes right now for Mysterious Universe. He started out over at Cryptomundo, and then he moved over to Mysterious Universe. And there, he has a huge array of articles that he's written over the years about Japanese folklore, Japanese myths and legends,、uh, Japanese oddities and strange things, and then. Over the years, branched out into just strange and mysterious stories of that nature around the world, and found and has found some amazing stories. And the work of Brent Swanser is some of the most unsung, outstanding reporting going on on the paranormal out there right now on the internet. And I know that covers a large array of people who are writing about the paranormal, but his stuff is so consistently good that any time I see an article from him. Cross my eyes on my newsfeed. I'm like, oh, let's look at this one. This one's going to be good. It's always good. It's always fascinating. It's amazingly well written, and it's more often than not, almost always, some story that I've never heard before, and either leaves me with chills or just leaves me absolutely amazingly educated about something strange and unusual that I hadn't heard about. And、uh, he's the complete opposite of your typical. 
person in the world of the paranormal because this is his first interview ever, and I've been really on his case over the last year or so to get him on BOA Audio. I've been chasing him down uh, hardcore. We're talking like Bruce Rucks level here, folks. I, I, I finally found his email after a few years of trying to figure out how to find him, and then subsequently have uh, been kind of wearing him down until he, <laughs> he agreed to come on the program. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have him here on the show. So I'm really looking forward to uh, finally getting to know him and, and get him here on the program and really introduce him to, hopefully, a much uh, wider audience. So welcome to BOA Audio, Brent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very, very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to it. So have I, man. So have I. Like I said, I've been a, a huge fan of your stuff for years and years and years. Really, I, I really enjoyed your stuff for such a long time. And, uh, you know, I'm Thank amazed you. That, uh, that you haven't done any shows yet. So I'm really psyched that we could be the first uh, folks to get you Yeah, this is my about. first one. My first one. I haven't done anything so far. Um, you know, I've I've been invited on a couple of shows over the years, and I wasn't sure. You know, I wasn't sure. I was a little nervous. But, um you know, everything I hear about your show is great, and I thought, let's do this. I want to do it. Nice. So I'm, I'm very happy to be here, yes. Awesome, awesome. It may come as, I don't know if it would come as a surprise to folks or not, because uh, you, you sound very American, but you're in Japan right now, so you're our first ever guest. I'm in Japan. In Japan, yes. yeah. We we finally broke it into the Pacific uh, on this show after nine seasons. Like I said, it's <laughs> really hard to find somebody uh who can who can do a show like this. So tell us a little bit about Brent Swanser, you know, give us the bio background. Uh how did you end up writing about all this stuff and you know how how did you end up in Japan and everything? Well, um I came to Japan about jeez, must be I came here in February of 1996, so about 19 years. Wow. And um yeah, it's been a long time and it wasn't really that wasn't really the plan at first. You know, I, I came over here for one year. I was going to study Japanese, and I was going to study about, uh, you know, some of the things in Japan. I was really interested. And um, it just turned into two years and three years and four years, and I kind of got caught up here, and I, I fell in love with this country. I mean, I, I love this place. And here I am, <laughs> 19 years later. And uh, a few years ago, about... Jeez, about not a few, but maybe eight years ago, I started writing on Cryptomundo, and I, I'd always had an interest in cryptozoology and uh, various Fortiana. And uh, my main thing was cryptozoology, and I found this site Cryptomundo, and um, I started, you know, commenting on it. And uh, you know, my comments were usually pretty lengthy. <laughs> and, I mean, these were articles unto themselves, pretty much. And I guess it caught the attention of Lauren Coleman, who at the time, you know, he's a pretty famous in cryptozoological circles. Um, he, he read one of my articles and he sent me a personal email. I was really surprised, like, Lauren Coleman, wow, I mean, I was a big fan. Yeah. I'd read all his books. And um, he sent me a mail saying, I really enjoyed your article, I mean, your comment. <laughs> And uh, he said, well, you know, that, that this is good stuff, you know, uh, and tell me a little bit about yourself. So I started, you know, mailing back and forth with Lauren Coleman, and I was pretty stoked because I was a big fan. And um, then one day he asked me, you know, why don't you write a, a guest blog about one of your topics, you know, and I, I think it was, um, if I remember correctly, it was about Japanese wolves in Japan that were extinct, but people think they're still out there. 
And I, I wrote an article about that, and he really liked it. So then that started to become a regular thing, and I was just writing guest blogs for uh, Cryptomundo. And um, that's pretty much how it all took off. Nice, nice. As far as the, um, as far as the writing goes. Yeah, and um, I was really happy to be on there, and um, happy to be, to, you know, to talk to Lauren Coleman. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And now I've moved over to uh, Mysterious Universe, which is a great site, and uh, I like it there. And I've branched out into other things, like you said. You know, I I did I started off mostly in cryptozoology, but um, I have an interest in lots of other stuff. So this has given me a platform to kind of write about other things that. I was interested in that I never really wrote about on Cryptomundo. Hmm. So it's been a very good experience so far, yeah. Yeah, like I said, man, I can't put it over enough, and uh, I really, really do enjoy your stuff. It's really tremendous. Thank you very much. You know, I, I mean, I, I was really honored that you, that you came to me with that because, um, you know, I didn't really have a personal policy, like I won't do interviews or right, anything right. like that. I wasn't being a recluse or anything. But <laughs> you know, you're really, not a diva. <laughs> right. So nobody ever really invited me on their shows. I mean, a, a couple times and I was... I wasn't really sure, you know, and then um, you, you came to me and you, you were telling me how good my stuff was and I should I should get on the show, and I thought, why? Well, I'll do it. Yeah. All right. I'm I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm I'm happy that you're my first show to be on. <laughs> I'm thrilled, man. I'm thrilled because uh, you you deserve all the kudos in the world. So that's the bio background. Now we can we kind of we went sort of uh, I don't know if it's old school or new school BOA audio style here, but I, I went through. This is how tremendous Brent stuff is, folks. I went through the vast archive of uh, his work at Mysterious Universe and and parsed it down to like twenty stories out of like fourteen pages of of, of an archive, and now it's down to twenty. And then even then it was like that's too that's too many, so I had to narrow that down to about a dozen. So. We cherry-picked what I think uh, were the most intriguing stories to me here uh, from the archive. But th this is really the very tip of, a, of an amazing iceberg, folks. So tonight we're going to get into, uh, you know, about a dozen or so of, of some of the big stories that Brent has written over the years. And hopefully this is the beginning of future correspondences on the program where we can cover some more of these stories because there's so many good ones on, on your archive. so. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll start out with... Uh, one that you specifically sort of mentioned is one of your one of your personal favorites, which is nice because I, I yes. it's good to start out with you know the one that's kind of like probably your uh, your touchstone story here, and that's the cursed paradise of uh, now forgive me, it's P Palmyra Atoll, I think, but maybe not. Uh, Palmyra Atoll, yes, that's right. So uh, tell me about this. Palmyra, people say Palmyra. All right. Palmyra. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try either way as we go. <laughs> <laughs> I think both are fine. There you go. So tell me about this uh, this story here of the uh, the cursed paradise of, of Palmyra Atoll. I've always had an interest, and if you read through my stuff, there's quite a lot of articles on islands, and um, I've I've always been interested in in islands and uh, the things that go on there, and I think there's kind of a well, I think somewhere in the human psyche, there's kind of a almost an archetype of the magical, mysterious island out there, you know, somewhere out in the ocean that nobody knows about, mm. where all these weird things go on. Like Lost. And I thought, I think, yeah, like exactly, like Lost. And I think that appeals to people. I think they have, you know, they have this image of this place far from civilization where these things go on. 
and it's it's almost like a like stuck in the human psyche and uh i've always I've always been drawn to that I think a lot of people are drawn to that mm. and I knew about this island um this strange island uh palmyra atoll it's such an atoll uh not really an island but like a, a grouping of little um islands all together yeah and um I, I had heard about this place before, and I was really interested in writing about that and I thought that might you know really appeal to people and um it's it's quite a weird uh, you know, exactly like Lost. I mean, it almost seems like Lost was based on this island, really. And um, that's what really inspired me to write about it. Well, what's so, been um, said that happens at this island that's so... Well, it's a cursed paradise, so what's the curse aspect of it? <laughs> the curse is, okay, It's um, this is an atoll that's out in the uh, Pacific Ocean. And it's pretty much uninhabited. There's no permanent inhabitants right now. And it's always had, you know, throughout history, all these weird stories. Like um, a lot of boats went missing there. Um, they had stories about how boats would be, you know, going by there and these coral reefs would suddenly appear out of nowhere. Uh, people that landed on the island uh, claimed that... Uh, there was all kinds of weird stuff going on, like lights in the sky, and um, you know, sh the sharks were apparently really, really aggressive there, uh, more than usual. Yeah. And uh, people kind of avoided it. Really, it was. Uh, it's it's been like that for quite a while since you know, like the early 1700s. Uh, people have been kind of avoiding that island because it had such a bad mojo to it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So. Um, yeah, there were there were uh, lots of stories like this, and um, for a while it was kind of almost like a spooky ghost story that sailors told themselves about yeah. uh, out in Palmyra Atoll. So um, it's 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 it started out kind of with uh, I mean, since it was discovered, it was kind of considered to be cursed by a lot of sailors that went by went through there. That's where I think the it all started. You know, some of these sailors that crashed on the reefs, you know, they would get to the shore and uh, they would kind of, you know, be waiting for help. And they would tell kind of stories about how there was things in the forest and um, how uh, the stuff in the sea that was usually okay to eat would be poisonous. And they were like, well, why is this poisonous? You know, they would eat these things that normally would be okay to eat and people would die and um, yeah. it, it was it was kind of weird, and they saw all these kind of like shadowy figures running around in the forest. They weren't quite sure what that was, so it was. Um, and this is way back, you know, in the 1700s that this was already starting. Weird. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty weird, and a lot of people uh, said that, you know, when they when they get there, they were just overcome with this sense of. Um, terror really i mean they just knew that there was something off i mean something they couldn't quite put their finger on it but you know they've been on a, some of them had been on quite a few islands and something about this place it was just touched something that that really freaked people out really. Weird. i mean they just wanted to get off of there and they didn't really know why at first in some cases they just wanted to get off of there it just has this kind of atmosphere of evil, really. Weird. Um, 
Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty weird. Do people and, like venture there nowadays? There have been even in modern times. Um, there were uh, there have been people who have gone through there, and um, a lot of them, you know, they say the same kind of thing. It's a it's a threatening place. It's very hostile. There's all kinds of weird things going on there, like uh, compasses don't quite work right, or they see lights in the sky. Um, they just say that every almost everybody who goes there. I mean, even in modern days, you know, there's yachts that go by and stop by. Um, everybody says that there's just something off about that, and um, they just feel kind of threatened for some reason. And um, I guess it's just got it's kind of a weird vibe, and and it's not. It wouldn't be the first time in modern times that something weird has happened there. I mean, during uh, World War II, uh, the U.S. Navy uh, used it as a facility, and um, they kind of used it for refueling station and for long, you know, long-range air patrols that were going there. And I, I, I believe that submarines also used it uh, as kind of a refueling station. And um, a lot of the soldiers there, you know, kind of. Um, you know, they had, they wanted to get off. They, they, they were asking to get transferred. Um, it got only even worse when, uh, there were some planes that took off from there that had some weird things that happened. Um, they, uh, you know, there was one plane that went and it flew off and it was nice weather. It just suddenly kind of, um, just, they had these, some kind of difficulty. And nobody knew what was going on, and this thing just kind of went down on the other side of the island, and um, they sent out a search patrol. They, they figured it went down, and they went looking for it, and they never found anything. They never found any wreckage. They never found even a screw from that plane, and it's kind of weird. I mean, everybody thought they saw it go down. Yeah, weird. But they don't know what happened to it. It just kind of disappeared and um you know this was back during world war Two, and there was another one that uh another plane that took off it was supposed to go north it started flying south and um it had an experienced crew and there were no problems with the plane when it took off and uh, ignored all attempts to signal it and it um it just kind of went down and nobody knew what was going on. And again, they couldn't find the wreckage. It's just kind of weird, <laughs> you know. And um, even the Navy officers there were saying that um, it was uh, there was a lot of bad luck there. I mean, a lot of the men got into fights. They got irritable. Yeah, and there was some kind of force, or yeah. who knows what it was. But um, it wasn't normal day-to-day operations of a naval base. That's for sure. Strange. Now this makes me wonder. Uh, this isn't anywhere. I don't think you've written this at all. But uh, you're you're officially now our man on the ground in Japan. So you you would have the right, insight right. on this. So you know here, of course, this, aside from the pockets of people who study this, the case, let's say, um, I guess people, the mainstream folks, just assume Amelia Earhart disappeared. But then there's the theory that she was like captured by the Japanese. What's the well, right. I guess the, the question is, like, what do people think and say over in Japan with regards to that whole story? Oh, in Japan, with, with Amelia Earhart. Right, right. Um, with Amelia Earhart in Japan, it, it's not really, it, you know, I don't, I'm not sure why, but it's never really been uh, particularly 
big story over here. I mean, um, there there's talk about it, um, but uh, it's it's never been a particularly popular or uh, as big as it is over in the states. You know, in the states, Amelia Earhart is like synonymous with people who have disappeared. Right. Yeah. Um, over the ocean, and in Japan, it's uh, you know it has never really been deeply touched on really um as far as the the stories about being captured by the japanese or things like that um they've always kind of never really been drawn to that theory they kind of deny that right uh, right well we kind of like it's it's sort of like americans and native americans you know it's like people don't we don't want to talk about that sort of i think it's kind of that vibe where it's like let's not bring up the whole fact that we captured a billion heart heart you know (laughs) That right, right. Be, um, yeah. they, they, they probably want to draw attention away from that. But, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's never been a popular, never been a popular theory over here. Uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting how wherever you go, you know, they have a, a different theory that's kind of catered to their own uh, preferences. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, as far as Japan goes, they haven't really ever warmed up to that idea. As far as Amelia Earhart goes, <laughs> I can see. <laughs> so, I can uh, imagine. Yeah. Is there more from Palmyra Atoll we should talk oh, about? Oh, well, yeah. There was uh, actually um, there's actually one of the most famous things. You were asking me about the um, the modern-day occurrences about Palmyra Island. It uh, has one of the most famous uh, unsolved murders happened there. Mm. And um, this happened in 1974. And um, it, was, uh, it was a couple. Uh, one was uh, Malcolm Graham. They, everybody called him Mac. And... Um, and then there was Eleanor Graham, who is his wife. Everybody called him Muff. So it was Mac and Muff. And uh, they had this, you know, this really romantic idea to go out on their boat and uh, sail around the world. And, um, you know, at first his wife wasn't too sure about it, but, you know, she kind of went along with it. And, um, you know, they left from Hawaii. They were well stocked and uh, they went out there. And, um, you know, when they got out there, there were already some people there, like uh, not a permanent settlement, but, um, you know, hippies, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were kind of camped out on the island. And um, it was a Buck Walker and uh, Stephanie Stearns were two of the main ones in this case. And uh, they had been living there for a while. They had, they had been running from the law. This is Palmyra Atoll. They're living in. This is Palmyra Atoll, and they, and they had had trouble with the law, and they had kind of gone out there. They took all their life savings, took this rundown boat, and went out there. And uh, when the Grams went there, um, there they were. And uh, there were a couple other people there, and they were a little disappointed because, you know, they wanted to get away from civilization and be out in the middle of the ocean. And they, But they met, you know, these people. And uh, a couple of, uh, there was like a, a few people camped out there at the time. It was Buck and Stephanie Stearns, which are the people that were kind of running from the law. And um, Mac and Muff went there, and, uh, you know, they didn't really get along too well. And uh, apparently, um, after a few months, uh, just nobody, there was no more contact from the Grams. They just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. And then people were kind of concerned, and they sent people out there to look for them, and they couldn't find them, the Grams, or their boat, which was called the Sea Wind. That was their boat that they had taken. Nobody could figure out what happened to them. They ended up finding uh, Muff's body 
uh, uh, not, not, not long after. And it was kind of just, uh, in the bottom of this lagoon, uh, stuck in this container. It, it had apparently been dislodged. It was found by this couple from, who was passing through from South Africa. And they'd just been walking along the beach and this, this container kind of washed up on shore and nobody had heard from the Grams in a while. And they found the body just kind of stuffed in this container. There was no, no clue what happened to her husband. I mean, he's, he's, they still don't know really what happened to him. And, um, basically it was just human bones there that were, that were discovered to be those of Muff Graham, which was the wife, Eleanor. Hmm. It just seemed really weird. Nobody know, really knew what happened. And the other people who had been there kind of just disappeared. And, um. Yikes. Yeah. And, and they, they figured that, you know, well, who, who killed her? You know, what, what, what happened here? Um, why was she stuck in this container? Like, where was everybody? You know, everybody had already left at the time. It was, it was pretty weird. Yeah. And, um, they ended up finding, uh, they, they ended up arresting, uh, Stephanie and Buck Walker, hmm. Stephanie Stearns and Buck Walker. They ended up, uh, charging them with murder, but they didn't really have anything to hold them with. Um, they, they charged them with boat theft. Cause they had ended up finding them with the boat that the Grams had been riding, but they had no evidence to, to show that they had ever killed anybody. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was weird. Oh, uh, highly yeah. circumstantial. Sounds like they did it, but you it's know. It's hi- highly circumstantial. I mean, they didn't know who did it. You know, at the trial, all this stuff happened, and um, there was uh, one guy who had been living there. You know, he was saying that uh, he had been walking out on the beach after a storm, and uh, on the beach he found this. Uh, basically all this, this stuff, flotsam and things that had been washed up. And he found a cardboard mailing tube. And this is a guy who had lived on Palmyra Island at the time. And he, he just found it on the beach one day after a storm. And he opened it up and he found a detailed chart of Palmyra Island, which was, um, kind of weird. It kind of goes beyond coincidence. I mean, it was synchronicity for sure. Yeah, that's odd. And, um, he found this, this, this detail chart, and this is long after this happened. And like, why am I finding this? And it was almost like, uh, the island calling out, you know, as some people say. Pretty spooky, actually. Strange. And, uh, there, there were a bunch of spooky things, like apparently letters that, um, the woman who had been killed, she had been sending, she had been sending to family and friends, said that she thought the island was evil, and there were things going on here, and uh, the friends who had been receiving the letters felt like kind of like she was saying goodbye. Weird. And um, this is before she was killed. This is before she was killed. Something was going on. They never did find out who killed them, but it's just weird that this stuff, you know, happened out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, nobody knew what was going on. I mean, this is all found years after, you know, the body in the container, and then you got this weird mailing tube washing up on shore with maps of Palmyra Island that the guy who had been living there at the time found, and um, it was just kind of bizarre, Yeah, you know what I'm saying? They never found out what happened. There was a trial, and uh, Buck Walker, who everybody thinks killed him because he never really got along with them, he went to prison for boat theft, and he was originally you know, in prison for that, but they let them go on parole and, uh, 
2007, I think it was. Hmm. And um, there were these stories that he had had an affair with the wife of, you know, with uh, Muff Walker, who was yeah, the one yeah. who was killed. Uh, Muff, who was killed. They had all these kind of uh, stories about how that happened, but nobody really knows what happened. It's kind of a mystery what happened on this weird island out in the middle of the Pacific. So yeah, that kind of drew me to the story. Yeah. And um, there have been other things, like in 1987, there was a, a boat that was found drifting around near the island, and uh, they found that it was it was kind of like the Mary Celeste. It was kind of just abandoned. Um that happened just in 1987. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, they found a couple abandoned uh, things. In um 1970s, they found one that was floating around out there. They found a couple boats that were just kind of abandoned floating around the island, which is kind of weird, too. And that kind of adds to the whole mystique. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's strange. Uh, yeah. Really weird. Part of me wants to go there, and then another part of me is like, don't ever go there. <laughs> It's got a it's got a long history of weirdness. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Seems like yeah. It. There was um there was one um in uh, what was it uh, 1989 that was kind of weird. Um this this family uh, there was a guy called Graham Hughes and he went aboard aboard his boat with his family in 1989 from San Diego and they uh, visited Palmyra Island for a while. And uh, that's where they were going to go. And then they were going to head out again to go sailing around. And they kind of just disappeared. They never did find them. And um, the weird thing was is that the man's first name in this case was Graham, which was the last name of the other people that had disappeared. The the man, his wife was murdered. And um, also, they were both originally from San Diego. And their boats were kind of almost the same name as well. Like the original boat from uh, the Grams was uh, the Sea Wind. And this family of Graham Hughes was the Sea Dreamer, which was kind of weird. And they never did find out what happened to them either. So weird. There's all these little synchronicity, you know, little things that link the cases. And it's just, you know, nobody knows. It's all circumstantial, really. But there's just enough weirdness to kind of link them together in a way that just makes people scratch their head, you know. Like, you know, I want to know what went on over there. Yeah, yeah. Yikes. It's one of my favorite stories of, of uh, weird islands out in the out in the middle of nowhere, you know. Yeah. I'll move into the next story here, because uh, as you said, you kind of started out in the crypto realm, and, and this was the first story you did for uh, Mysterious Universe. I got a friend who, he right. when he does sort of research on this, he likes to start with the person's first story, as it says a lot about them, So, and I agree. Uh, so tell me about the Jinkin men. Jin- the Jin Minkin. Yes, yes, yes. The Jin Minkin. <laughs> this is one of the weirder stories from Japan, right, for sure. <laughs> yeah, tell me about this, this creature or whatever it is. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I know I know what it is. I guess based on what you've written, but folks don't. So tell tell us about this this odd little creature. Right, so, um, Jimenken is basically translated from uh, basically means in Japanese the human faced dog. As far as the stories go, uh, this is a dog. I mean, it looks like a dog in all respects, but it has a human face, which is yeah. It's pretty weird, and it sounds like 
you know, purely a folkloric kind of thing, you know, from Japanese folklore, but um, there have been a lot of stories over the years that kind of point to maybe something more uh, with it. Basically, the Jin Menken, what they call it, is usually about the size of a medium-sized dog. It's got usually pretty dirty looking, and uh, most of the stories go that people see it from a distance and think it's, you know, just a regular dog, and they call out to it. And uh, when it turns around, they see it has a human face, and uh, it'll sometimes talk, apparently. Oh. Um, usually, it tells people to go away. It'll just say, leave me alone. And, um, I mean, these stories go way back. I mean, way back in Japan, these stories of this dog with this human face, it'll just turn around, freak people out, and usually tell them to leave them alone. Sometimes they'll have simple conversations with them, but... Um, the main story is they tell them to leave them alone. It's it's really persistent in Japanese folklore. I mean, at least from the 1600s, they've had these. And it sounds like just a weird ghost story. But um, they were apparently actually sometimes captured. And they would show them at these things called misemono, which is uh, basically these sideshows, like circus sideshows that were really popular back in the... Um, what they call it the Edo period of Japan, which was from the 1600s till nearly the end of the 1800s. I think it was uh, 1868. And um, they would catch them and put them in these misemono, which were like circus sideshows. And uh, basically these cabinets of curiosities, they would show things like animals from around the world, um, mummified remains of things, mm, yeah. uh, all kinds of weird stuff from around the world. And uh, sometimes they would have these shows where they would show the Jim Minkin. And uh, people would go there and actually see them right in front of their face. It wasn't really, I mean, um, nowadays people think maybe it was uh, trickery. You know, somebody glued a mask on dogs or something. But there were people who actually went by there, like, who had credentials, like uh, zoologists and things from Europe. Yeah. And they would take a look at them, and they wouldn't be able to figure out, like, how, I mean, there were no stitches. There were no anything to show that it was a fake. Right. There were people who and, considered that at the time, is what you're saying. Yeah. They right. Were, at yeah. the time, they, they, they thought, you know, wow, what is that? You know, and so it had, although it sounded like a spooky kind of urban legend, there were things in history with these these shows, these misemono sideshows where people were going there and actually seeing, a lot of people would look at them and think, well, what, what is that? So that's kind of curious to me. Like, what were they seeing? You know, so I that was appealing to me. And I, I, I've heard these stories for a while, and I thought, well, well what, what were they seeing? You know, I, I can't say for sure. I mean, I'm not saying they're human-based dogs out there, but it's definitely weird, you know. Yeah, it's very strange, and the element, the you know, the it, it add an extra element to it with the with the fact that it was in these circuses and stuff. So it's like we're right, kind of right, really we're in these sideshows, and apparently living specimens. I mean, these weren't just dried up, like taxidermed, you know, like a a monkey's face glued onto a dog. Right, I mean, right. they were apparently moving around and. Uh, freaking people out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there any accounts of these captured ones talking? Um, yeah, apparently the the ones that were captured 
would do the same kind of thing as the old stories. They would tell people to leave them alone. Um, sometimes they would they would beg for food. You know, apparently they were a lot quieter uh, in captivity, but they would sometimes beg for food or tell people to go away, and they would just kind of mope in the corner. And um, yeah, but yeah, they apparently talked. That's so <laughs> and, weird. Uh, People, wow. people who saw them, like, like there was uh, uh, this this zoologist from Europe who went there, and he was he wrote about them, and he said, you know, this thing really, really freaked him out. Like when he went back, he he couldn't get his mind off of this thing, and he wanted to go back and study them. And um, of course, when he went back, it was gone, as these things happen yeah. <laughs> usually yeah. often go, but. Um, it's it's weird. That that's actually a common thing with these things. The Jimenken is that they 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 instill this sense of of fear and uh, dread in people who see them, uh, and that's also kind of a weird, almost paranormal twist to it. Yeah, yeah, very strange. And now, how often are they still seen nowadays, or or is that sort of like few and far between? They, 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 they're seen nowadays, um, in the modern day. Um, they're not very common, but, um, <clears throat> there was, uh, one case, I, I believe it was in the 80s, um, in, uh, was it Shinjuku, which is actually a major, major, I mean, this is, this is a major shopping area. I mean, when you think of, Blade Runner with uh, the neon lights and the big TVs. This is this is Shinjuku, and in this back alleyway, there were stories for a while of uh, seeing these things. Um, usually in the back of restaurants, where they'd be kind of rooting through the garbage, and people would see them um, something rooting through the garbage, and they would look and say, "Oh, what is that dog? It's looking through the garbage." And it would turn around, and sure enough, uh, they would say it had a human face. And this is not out in the middle of nowhere. This is in the middle of this major shopping, right. uh, you know, downtown district, which is kind of weird. Those are pretty persistent throughout the '80s. Actually, people kept saying they they saw these things in the back alleyways. I mean, I what do you make of that? Is that just a is that just stories that people are telling, or or what? But I mean, there were there were a lot of them in the '80s, and then it kind of dropped off. Uh, there were no more real sightings after that, but occasionally people will say that um, that these things will run out, like people will be driving along lonely roads and these things will run out, and they're pretty known for being fast, and they'll kind of keep up with the car and kind of chase the car for a little while and then disappear. And uh, people still tell stories like that up until now, uh, up until modern days. Um, but uh, yeah, sh- sh- Shibuya. It wasn't Shinjuku. It was Shibuya, Shibuya, um, a, a big shopping area. That, that's where they were seen in the eighties. That that was one of the more famous things. I think it was even in the newspapers at the time. Mm. Uh, people kept seeing these things. Weird. And, uh, it sounds kind of absurd. It, you know, it sounds kind of absurd. So um, a lot of people in Japan have tried to figure out what they might have been seeing. And the main idea is that it was Japanese macaques, which are um, um, basically monkeys, Japanese monkeys, that are, can be found pretty much all over Japan. And they sometimes venture into urban areas, and they kind of look like, I guess, a dog if you, uh, you know, if you see it from a distance. Um, 
and it has kind of a human-looking face, so people think that maybe they're seeing those. But, um, you know, again, a lot of Japanese know what a Japanese macaque looks like. Right, yeah. That's not what they're they're saying. That's not what we saw. No, that's not what we saw. We saw it was a human-faced dog. And, um, you know, Japanese macaques are the main explanation for them right now. Yeah. Uh, and they, they make all kinds of noises that might sound like people talking. So, but, you know, nobody really knows what causes these stories. And they, they, they've been going on, yeah, occasionally... You know, reports pop up weird. to this day. So, yeah, that's a cryptid I've never weird. heard of before till I read your stuff. <laughs> yeah, the Jinbinken. It's a, it's a, You know, it's hard to it's hard to say with Japanese cryptids sometimes because um, a lot of real animals in Japan have been kind of imbued with this with magical powers and you know their superpowers like you got crows you got the badger you got foxes all of those have have been given all these weird abilities and powers over the years i mean if you had just heard about what a fox is from a japanese person back in the the old days you would think it was just a story an urban legend but it's a real animal so um with japanese cryptids sometimes you never know if it comes from a real animal or not yeah because uh a lot of real animals have been kind of given these powers. Yeah, it's with the Jiminkin. You wonder, is it a real animal that just has been played up to be more mysterious? Or is it just totally a folklore or what? You know, it's hard to tell sometimes where the line is Yeah, with Japanese cryptids. So that's interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange, strange story. And like I said, what piqued my interest was this Cirque, was the traveling sort of uh, curiosities thing where it's like this this is right. way beyond sort of like a Bigfoot type story because we're dealing with accounts of uh, stuff being seen by many witnesses and things like that. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of witnesses saw them and nobody could figure out. If it was trickery, nobody could figure out how they did it. Um, I mean, these things moved like real animals. So, you know, I wish I knew what what they were seeing. Like, how did they pull it off? Yeah. And Japanese Japanese craftsmen have been famous for a while for making like um, really nice taxidermed fake things, like uh, mermaids and things like that. But um, for something moving and alive, I, I I'm not sure how they would be able to pull that off. But a lot of people saw them. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, kind of in the same vein as the Palmyra Atoll is uh, the Suicide Forest, which is really uh, – I, I watched a documentary about it on Vice, which right. is a half-hour show where they went in with like an expert into the Suicide Forest, and it was like so chilling and so just unsettling. And they're actually making a movie, I guess, about it here in the States. Uh, it should be made into a movie – Definitely movie-worthy material. Yeah. Tell folks at home here about the uh, the mysterious suicide forest of Japan. The mysterious suicide forest is, um, the real name of it is Aokigahara, which basically means the Sea of Trees. Um, and it's it's near Mount Fuji. Uh, probably a lot of uh, listeners know where Mount Fuji is. It's a iconic landmark of Japan. And... Um, it's at the base of Mount Fuji, and uh, it's just this, I mean, in the daytime, I suppose it's quite beautiful. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's an old-growth forest, and um, it's, it's, it's really peaceful and quiet, um, very nice scenery. A lot of people go there to hike and to uh, for leisure activities, but um, there's kind of a dark underbelly of it. 
and it's known as the suicide forest. You can kind of see it if you go there and visit it. Um, there's something kind of weird about it, about that place. It's really quiet. It's quiet. I think it's mostly due to the density of the trees. The trees are really close together, and um, it kind of blocks out the sunlight. It's dark. It's, it's a spooky place to begin with. Very, very quiet. I mean, you can't, there are no birds there or anything. Um, you can't really hear them. It's, everything's got a kind of a muted quality to it. Uh, that's what most people say when they get there. Um, there are other weird things there, like uh, apparently compasses won't work. The needles kind of spin around. Um, they think that's probably magnetic. There's a lot of uh, uh, iron in the soil there, so they think that might be it. Mm. But it's still weird. I mean, that plus the darkness and the you know the the quiet. It's it's apparently a really really kind of almost um, heavy blanket of quiet mm, over yeah. the area. You can even and, get that uh, from the vice can... thing. Right? Just watching the vice thing, and you get just that sense of how it's. Oh yeah, uh, it's like out of time almost. It's really weird. It's almost out of time. You get there, and it's a surreal sense. Everything's muted. It almost feels like you're in a dream. I mean, it's just weird. And then people people apparently get lost in there. Like um, even experienced hikers who kind of know the way of the land uh, report just kind of like not knowing where they are and kind of like walking around in circles. And um, it's got this disorienting effect to it. And I'm not sure if that's supernatural or anything, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it has that effect on people. And um, if you walk around there a little bit, you'll find kind of weird things laying around on the forest floor that nobody ever bothered to really clean up. Like uh, you'll find shoes, like people have just left shoes out in the middle of the forest. And it's kind of weird. Um, photographs just laying around, strewn about. Um, they found uh, dolls, like freaky little dolls just kind of laying there. They don't know if people just leave those on purpose or if these are the people that commit suicide. But one of the things that's really famous about the Aokigahara Forest is um, people go there to kill themselves, basically. Nobody really knows why this place is so popular, but people are drawn there, and they go out there, and they they hang themselves from trees is is usually what they do. Mm. And uh, people have been hiking through the forest, and it's already spooky, like I've been saying. It's spooky enough it is. You see these little dolls laying on the forest floor, and you come across a body hanging from a tree, um, sometimes totally decomposed, and a lot of them, like, it's it's got a very high rate of suicides reported in that forest. And um, nobody seems to know why people want to go there to kill themselves. That plus all of the other weird stuff I've been mentioning kind of makes it a bizarre place to be, I would suppose. Yeah. You know, Japanese people who've called it basically has kind of this nickname as the perfect place to die. Because it's such a peaceful, you know, locale and, and people want to go there and they kill themselves. And apparently it's got one of the the, mo- the highest suicide rates in the world. Um, from what I know, I heard the Golden Gate Bridge is one of the highest and Aokigahara is, is second. It's weird. I mean, this has been happening since the 50s, hmm. at least. I mean, people have been coming here. They say they're nearly 100 suicides a year there. 
Um, that's what authorities say. Nice. And, um, Very yeah, strange. it's kind of a spooky kind of, you know, the spooky forest where people are just going to die and nobody really knows why, what makes it so popular. And there have been stories over the years, like the forest almost calls them. Like some people who have gone there to commit suicide and kind of had second thoughts and went back home have said that um, they kind of felt like they were drawn there almost. Like that was the place to go to die. And they can't quite explain it themselves, but it's almost like the forest was calling to them, which is, you know, kind of sends a chill up the spine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said, that's another place, like, uh, I want to visit, but then I'm sure, I'm sure if I want to or not. Like, it sounds like, have you, now, not necessarily the suicide forest, but, uh, have you had a chance to sort of visit any strange locations that, that are sort of tied to, to these Japanese mysteries or oddities or, or cryptid type tales? Yeah, I've been to a few places. Um, I've been to, um, Sunshine 60, which is a building, um, that's supposedly haunted in, um, Ikebukuro, Tokyo. It's a, Ikebukuro is an area of Tokyo. And, um, it was built over a, a prison. It was called Sugamo Prison. Um, and, uh, now it's this major shopping center. They call it a, a city within a city. It's got, um, oh man, it's got shops. It's got, uh, office buildings. It's got office space. It's got an aquarium on the 10th floor. Oh wow. Like a full blown aquarium. I mean, this, it's, it's a really sprawling kind of shopping entertainment area, but it was built over this prison that was known for executing war criminals during uh right after World War II and it's supposedly heavily haunted. I never saw anything weird there, but I've been there a few times. Um there's supposedly all kinds of apparitions that appear there, like there's a lady that jumps off the observation tower and you'll see this ghostly figure jump off and you'll go to help them and there's nobody there. Um I've been there a couple times and um I've been out to the base of Mount Fuji near Aokigahara Forest, and um, I never personally saw anything strange there. But I can see where I can see where people would be a little freaked out. It's it's um it's a, it's very weird place. It's got a kind of ominous uh, feel to it, even in the daytime. Yeah, I've also been out to um, some of the areas where they say that. Um, some of the other Japanese cryptids, like the Tsuchinoko, which is a—it's uh, kind of like a cryptid snake. It looks like a, a fat snake that kind of jumps <laughs> along. It's another Japanese cryptid. Apparently, a jumping snake. Apparently, it'll sometimes roll along like a wheel, according to the old stories. Um, I've been to some of the areas where those are supposed to be around, looking for them, and I've done some research looking for them, and. Um, Never saw one, hmm. but um, yeah, I've, I've I've been around a few places in Japan, nice. uh, kind of checking up on these things myself. Uh, the Japanese wolf, which is extinct now, people think that it's still out there. I've I've gone out on some expeditions, kind of looking for those as well. Haven't found anything yet, but uh, intriguing stories, nevertheless. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That suicide forest. It's uh, like I said, the. On the Vice special, I thought it was really, it was just chilling too. Uh, they go into the forest with a, with an expert 
as oh, they yeah. go in. People go in there. There's like a sign that's obviously it's in Japanese, but he reads it, and it's it's like a it's like a plea to whoever's reading it not to kill themselves. It's like life is short. A lot of this, you know, think of your family, think of your parents, call someone. It's like really freaky, right. like to see that, that that's how serious it is. Yeah, they have those signs all over the place, and they're usually on these uh, really desolate-looking trails that go out into this dark forest, and you you come across the sign that says, "Think about your family. Don't do it. Don't kill yourself." I mean, that's how much of a problem it is. Uh, every year they send out body hunts, basically. The police and volunteers send out hunts to basically go look for the bodies of all of these people that go out there and disappear. It's pretty chilling. Yeah. Um, some of them are never found. Uh, some people go out there and then they just never hear from them again. But they send out these groups of volunteers to go try and find as many as they can, and they say there's up to 100 a year. Right, so I, I don't know if those signs are working or not. <laughs> it doesn't seem like <laughs> it seems like people are ignoring the signs, but um, yeah, they have them up. They have uh, security cameras. They have um, police patrols that go through there all the time. But it's it keeps going on, and it's just this weird, freaky forest. And that that forest actually has a long history of folklore behind it. Um, it's long been known for having all kinds of ghosts and uh, demons and Japanese yokai. They call them yokai. They're um, basically Japanese boogeymen and weird monsters from myth. Um, it, it, that forest has had a long history of being considered to be haunted. So <clears throat> that adds to the kind of spookiness of the story. I can only assume, had, and I mean this with the most utmost respect, but I can only assume that it's almost certainly haunted now. If, if such, if, if haunting is possible, it must it, be haunted. If it's not haunted, it should be. It seems, it seems like a place that should be haunted. Like if you go there, you think if this is not haunted, then it 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 should be. Yeah. Um, it, it's got such a long history of these suicides, uh, ghost stories. Um, one of these. Uh, Almost mythical practice from back in the old days is that they had this thing called ubasute, which was um, they would take their sick or elderly relatives and they wanted them to die in peace. Um, so they would take them out in the middle of nowhere and just leave them there to die. Um, it was an old, apparently, I mean, it was an old Japanese practice. Some people say that it wasn't a real tradition, but it's been said to have been an old practice. And they leave these people out there just to die in the middle of nowhere. And apparently that suicide forest was pretty famous for that. So even back in the old days, like the 16, 1700s, people were going there to die. So um, that's another spooky detail yeah. of the story. Very weird. Um it, it really drew me. That 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 place is um, very weird. I've I've actually never been in the in the middle of it or gone really up, but I've been in that area. Close enough, and, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, this. <laughs> I was. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to go in there or not. But um, yeah, that 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 forest has got something going on. It's weird. I mean, regardless of whether it's really haunted, regardless of whether there's really ghosts there, the fact is that over 100 people go there to, to commit suicide every year. So that that's weird, yeah. no matter how you look at it. Definitely. I think so. A very spooky place. <laughs> um, now, we, talk, we yeah. talked about the, the, uh, the cursed 
Palmyra Atoll, and that sort of segued into sort of these strange islands. And one of them that you wrote about was the mysterious ghost island of Japan, which at first... Ah, yeah. You think that it would be something kind of akin to the suicide forest, maybe, where people see a bunch of ghosts, but it's like a completely kind of different thing going on with this this island. It's amazing. Uh, and folks, there's going to be links to all this stuff at the Banal of America page, so you'll be able, you know, if you if you hear us reference one of these articles, uh, if you can't, if you're not patient enough to go look for it yourself, you can click on the link at Banal of America, and we'll have them all in the recap. But, uh, you know, it sounds at first like it's just an island of ghosts, but... Uh, it's actually like this strange sort of, uh, abandoned island that's, um, it's amazingly built up. It's, right. it's, it's stunning. It looks like a, like a ship almost from a distance. It's crazy. Right, right. Hashima Island. Um, they call it Battleship Island, as a matter of fact, just because of what you said. It looks like a battleship, basically. Um, Hashima Island is right off of, uh, Nagasaki, which most, listeners maybe know is where the atomic bomb was dropped, one of the atomic bombs. Um, yeah, Hashima Island, they call it Battleship Island, uh, Gunkanjima, which means Battleship Island. It's an abandoned island. It used to be uh, basically a coal mining operation. Uh, for a while, uh, it was owned by the Mitsubishi Corporation. It was uh, coal mining, and it just brought in all these people. If, uh, at one point, it was the most intensely, I mean, per square kilometer, per square meter, uh, the most intensely populated places in the world, actually. Oh, wow. Um, this little island in the middle of the, you know, right off the coast of Nagasaki. And um, basically, people came in and, and moved in there. They built up every inch of this island. I mean... It's it's really amazing, actually. This this is a tiny little island. It's it's, a, it's like a football field, uh, and um, they built up every single inch of this place. It was just bustling with people, all stuffed into this little this tiny little area. I've never seen anything like it. Have you seen pictures of it? Yeah, there's great pictures on your on on your article about it. Now, oh, you why saw did, those pictures, right? Yeah, why did it get abandoned, and how come no one's gone back just to rebuild on the island? Why is it Why is it just left to left to decay? Well, what happened was, um, so the Mitsubishi Corporation bought this island. It was um, at the end of the 1800s, um, and uh, they they wanted to mine it for coal. And they, they found coal there. And at that time, coal was a major fuel source. Um, so coal was a big thing back then. And uh, they kind of took control of it. And uh, basically, coal miners and all their families came there. And it, at first, it was very, very popular place. I mean, people wanted to be there. They wanted to make money. They were, they were um, mining thousands of tons of coal there. And um, it was just... Very prosperous. Uh, the company built the place up. It had apartment buildings. It had all kinds of entertainment facilities there. Um, they were digging tunnels under the ocean to, to mine coal, and, and people were just flocking there, basically. Uh, apartment complexes, everything there. And um, so at first, it was it was very, very successful operation. and. Um, very heavily crowded. I mean, every inch of land was was used up, and they were building new land, landfill around the island to to 
accommodate all these people that were coming. And um, the reason why it, it kind of saw a decline was that coal went out of fashion. So um, after World War II, um, they were looking for new fuel sources, basically, and it started to be not financially viable to keep this operation going. And um, they closed it down, and people were like, oh, I'm out of a job now, and they just left. I mean, en masse, and they left it in a hurry, apparently, because if you go there, it looks like people just just stepped out for a minute. I mean, there there are plates set out on tables. I mean, there are TVs, furniture, things like that in the rooms. You you walk around there, you almost expect somebody to come home, you know, yeah. and, and say, oh, hey, I'm home. You know, it's it, it, it's it's really quite bizarre how fast everybody just jumped ship yeah. on this island. And um, it used to be one of the most like I said, it was the most heavily populated place per square mile on Earth, really. And it just suddenly was empty. And everybody just left everything behind. The company who owned the island didn't bother to go in and remove anything because they figured, ah, it's too much trouble, too much expense, just leave it. Mm. So everything was just left to the elements. And um, it's got kind of a dark history to it because during the um, – this is where the haunted part comes in. Um, during the the war, they had a lot of prisoners going there to mine coal, and uh, at that time, you know, safety precautions were not a priority. So there were very few. I mean, it's very dangerous work. They had no safety precautions, no uh, nothing like that in place. Right, so yeah. people were just basically working down in the mines without any kind of help. I mean, people were, quite a few people died there. One of the islands that they used that was next to Hashima was used as a crematorium. And, uh, you know, the the prisoners that were there mining coal would see the smoke from the burning bodies on the horizon, which is pretty freaky. People who tried to escape they couldn't really because there's a lot of the area is known for its high waves. They they built a wall around the island. Uh, people who could get over the wall would usually drown. So um, it was almost like Alcatraz Island. It was like this place in the middle of the ocean that they were being forced into slave labor, basically couldn't escape, um, like a prison. And a lot of people died there. And uh, I think that also gives it that plus the fact that it looks like everybody just up and left, yeah, I think that that has given birth to a lot of the ghost stories that go yeah. along that go around out there. Well, it's cool, too. I'm looking at the article here. It says uh, that in 2009, they partially opened the island. So I guess before then, you couldn't yeah. even go there. So I guess it's another place that I'd like to check out someday. Uh, right. Uh, for a while, they, they didn't allow any visitors. It was uh, considered to be dangerous. Um, a lot of the buildings are pretty you know, deteriorated, and um, they didn't allow anybody. Now they allow people there, but it's just a few places of the island people are allowed to go. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, they've opened it to people. You can go in there and take a look, uh, anybody who's interested. I, I think it's uh, difficult to get there because a lot of the tour boats in, encounter bad weather or high waves. But... Um, if you can get a tour that goes there and can actually make it to the island, uh, I guess it's worth checking out. It's a very bizarre place. 
uh, lots, I mean, it just looks like people are still living there, even now. Um, everything's moldy and kind of uh, dusty, but it, 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 it looks like people still live there. It's, it's very bizarre. Hmm. And uh, they say there are ghosts there. Uh, people leave graffiti on the walls saying that this place is evil and uh, Hashima is dead. And uh, people see, like, ghostly shapes up in the windows. And it's, it's, I guess that's kind of be expected, stories like that with such a dark history. But um, it's really one of the freakier places in Japan that I've heard of. I've actually never personally been there, but from what I hear, I know people have actually been there. And uh, they say it's it's quite a surreal experience to walk around these old rooms that they're abandoned with plates still out and things like that. Oh, yeah. Sounds otherworldly. Yeah. We'll stay in the realm of Japan because there's a whole bunch of other stuff we haven't even got to yet that isn't Japanese. But I, I, we're kind of on, oh, right. on a Japanese roll here. So we'll we'll stay within yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the land. Because as I said, I've been dying to do a, an episode on Japanese Stories like this, so uh, I'm, I'm really, right, right. I'm just like, I'm just, I'm just like a fat guy at a buffet right now. I'm loving it. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, and, and you said you started kind of in the crypto realm, and I kind of originally, deep as a child, had kind of the first thing I was into was the cryptid realm too, and Bigfoot, of course, uh, being American. And you, uh, you wrote about the Japanese Bigfoot, the Bigfoot of Japan. For lack of a better term, that's one Bigfoot we haven't talked about on the show before uh, in all these years. Right. Uh, I think it's a Bigfoot that a lot of people don't even know about. Well, let's tell them about it, dude. Let's, that's why I'm so yeah. excited to get you on the show. We're learning so much. We're hearing about so much new stuff. Uh, tell us about uh, the, 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 the Hibagon. Uh, yes, the Hibagon is um, a Japanese-owned, homegrown Bigfoot. And, uh, well, as in a lot of people probably who are listening know that hairy hominids are reported around the world. Um, a lot of people probably don't think of Japan when they think of Bigfoot. But, yes, Japan has its own Bigfoot called the Hibagon. And the Hibagon, that, that comes from where it was originally sighted, which is a Mount Hiba. That's uh, down in the south part of Japan. It's uh, probably people may be known Hiroshima, which is uh, another place where they dropped the bomb, actually. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets its name, the Hibagon. It's a little bit different, actually, than the, what a lot of people think of when they think of Bigfoot. They think of these huge, um, almost human-looking hominids. But the Hibagon of Japan is... A lot more ape-like. It's a little smaller. Uh, it's not 10 feet tall. It's more like uh, 5 or 6 feet tall. And it's, it's said to be more like a gorilla almost, more ape-like, uh, more animalistic. It's not very human-looking. But uh, still weird considering Japan doesn't have any gorillas or, or great apes. Yeah. Um, it has a lot of, some of the other things are similar to the North American Bigfoot, like the smell. They apparently smell really bad. That's one of the, re- the ways you know if one's around is that from its stink. Hmm. But I think the, the most interesting thing about the Japanese uh, Hibagon is that it all came from one flap of sightings that happened actually um, only in the 70s. Um, before that, Nobody ever really talked about any kind of Japanese Bigfoot. And then in 1970, it was spotted on Mount Hiba in uh, Hiroshima Prefecture, the Hiroshima area of Japan. Um, the first major sighting where everybody says that they 
that's where the Hebagon was first came to prominence was uh, actually a group of elementary school students with their teachers were out in the forest and suddenly this thing like a gorilla it was kind of described as almost like an ape or a gorilla came just kind of crashing through the brush almost in an intimidation display yeah and uh that sighting kind of uh from there it took off and from there people started seeing this thing all the time just in Mount Hiba, just in this one area of Japan. Huh. After that, in the 70s, it was cited by lots of different people, like uh, from all walks of life. And uh, it was always described the same way as kind of like this ape-like creature. And uh, they found trackways. Uh, again, unlike Bigfoot, they weren't very big. Uh, they were like 21 centimeters, which is like, what, size nine or ten. I mean, these are not huge tracks, but still weird because they would find them out in where there were there was snow, barefoot tracks. Uh, they were finding trackways and taking plaster casts, just like with the Bigfoot. Yeah. People started seeing these things all the time in the 70s, and they were all over the newspapers. The media was reporting, oh my God, the Japanese Bigfoot, Hibagon, Hibagon. You know, sometimes these things were were seen with you know, tools. Some some people cited them carrying like tools around, uh, almost like a like some kind of primitive caveman or something. Oh, weird. Um, they were they were seen by a lot of people throughout the seventies, and then the sightings just kind of dropped off. Like after uh, the nineteen eighties. People weren't really seeing it anymore. Um, in modern days, there have been a couple sightings, but not really. It was almost totally the 70s and almost totally within uh, Mount Hiba, which is uh, Hiroshima, only that one area. So huh. that's kind of a weird aspect of the story. This is not something like Bigfoot in North America, which is seen pretty much everywhere. Uh, this is, was only seen in one area, Um and only really in the 1970s. And uh, there have been a lot of ideas of why that is. Uh, some people think that if it is a real undiscovered creature, that maybe it was, uh, you know, it was brought down from the mountains because it was injured, or uh, maybe for some reason it kind of was pushed out of its habitat by uh, people moving into the area and then it kind of went extinct or went back to wherever it came from. But, um, yeah, that's, that's always been something that's been weird about the Hebagon is that it was seen for such a short range of time. Yeah, it makes me think that it was something that was there, but it's like, it was, a, you know, the old idea of like what they say about Bigfoot in England where it's like, well, it couldn't survive, the, the breeding population and all that. Maybe it is something like that where right. it's just... Right. You know, a very small number of things, and they kind of, uh, there was these were the last of the Hebagon was what people saw it, or something. I'm not sure, though. It could have been the last of them. It could have been, um, at that time, uh, a lot of people were moving away from the area, and uh, they think that maybe because not so many people were out hunting wild boar and deer and things, there were not as many hunters at the time, uh, that maybe the things thought that they could come down, that they were safer to come down out of their more remote mm, yeah. areas. That was one idea. There are other ideas that are less outlandish, like um, they think that maybe uh, they may have been 
a really large, again, here was with the same thing with the Jimenken, the human face dogs. They think that it was maybe a large Japanese macaque, uh, Japanese monkey that was running around scaring people. But that, that theory I've never really liked because the people in that area would know what those look like. They wouldn't be saying oh, it was a big giant gorilla creature right, if right. they knew it was a Japanese monkey. Other things are that maybe it was some hermit or mountain man living out there uh, that was maybe scaring people a little bit. Um, there have been all kinds of ideas like that. But um, I've never really found any idea that really matches what people said they were seeing. Um it's very clear in the reports that it's uh, some kind of gorilla creature. Um, so it may have been an escaped great That's, ape or something like that. Yeah, that was my second guess, maybe, that it's like a, like an out-of-place animal that escaped somehow from a zoo or from a private collection or something like that, maybe. could have been something like that. It could have been a, um, a Japanese subspecies of Asiatic bear, um, which are... They have black bears in Japan, which have kind of a, a white spot on their chest. They're black. And one of the one of the interesting things about Hibagon reports is that a lot of people report a white spot on dark fur. Hmm. So some people have seen that detail and said, well, it's obviously a Japanese black bear. They have a white spot on black fur. But at the same time, they don't. You know, it was kind of like in, you know, North American Bigfoot. They think, oh, people are seeing bears. Uh, the same kind of thing goes in Japan. People think they might be seeing bears, which I suppose is a possibility. But um, these people are not, you know, they're seeing something that looks like a gorilla. So, right. hmm. That's it's the same kind of problem they have with, uh, you know, Bigfoot reports being mistaken for bears. That might have something to do with it, perhaps. Hmm. But um, it's a very weird story. People don't really see them nowadays, so we don't really know what's going on. But in a lot of areas in Hiroshima, you can still find um, like statues of the Hibagon, and they have like Hibagon crossing signs, and they're pretty proud of uh, <laughs> of that. I mean, this happened in the seventies, but Hibagon still pretty popular, especially in that area. People know what you're talking about if you say Hibagon. Oh yeah, the Hibagon, the Hibagon. They have um, yeah all kinds of uh, Hibagon souvenirs you can buy if you go down there. Um, it, it's it's pretty interesting how it's still popular even now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, you do cover a lot of the different cryptids here. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the uh, – there's a post you have. We, there's a lot of different beasts profiled here in the strange beast of Japan's far north. Uh, but right. But one I was interested in is the uh, – oh, I'm going to really ruin this one. But the, the Ako, Akoro Kamu Kamu. Akoro Kamu. Akoro Kamui. Akoro Kamui. There we go. The Akoro Kamui. You've got right, 19 right. years of, of uh, practice ahead of me on this one. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get it. You'll get it. <laughs> the Akoro Kamui. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in Hokkaido, right, which is the northern island of Japan. Yeah. What is this uh, creature all about? Um, the Akoro Kamui uh, is originally known from the uh, Ainu people of Japan, which is uh, pretty much like in the United States, the Native Americans. These are the uh, indigenous people of Japan. Uh, they're called the Ainu. And uh, 
although they they used to live in other areas of Japan, they were kind of pushed up to the north. Now they live mostly in the northern island of Hokkaido. And um, throughout Ainu folklore, they've had the story of the Akoro Kamui, which is uh, basically a huge, I mean, massive red, almost octopus-like creature. It's usually described as being quite huge. Um, some reports have it at like 100 feet or more in width, which is uh, massive. Um, and uh, it, it has been reported throughout Ainu history. Uh, they used to say that the Ainu would go out on boats, on fishing boats. They they traditionally carried sickles like uh, for farming with them in their boats. And they say that one of the reasons they had those was to fight off the Akaro Kamui, which was known to attack boats, uh, steal fishermen's catches, um, basically freak people out <laughs> hey, yeah. just by coming up to the surface. They would kind of come up to the surface and then just kind of sink back down. They were um, prominent with the Ainu. And uh, even some uh, European explorers who came there to study the Ainu said that, um, yeah, the Ainu would tell them, oh, don't go out. Don't go out on the boats now. The, the Akaru Kamui is out there. Or the fisherman would come back really scared to death of something, and he would ask, what, what, what are you scared of? Oh, the Akaru Kamui, it's out there. Um, huge octopus creature, basically. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain yeah, it. Yeah, no, but, no, that's, that's pretty good, yeah. It's seen as a, a kind of like a squid or octopus thing. And they're not friendly. Um, apparently... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was uh, known to be aggressive and attack boats and uh, f- just harass fishermen. Very weird. Yeah, not not very not something you want to come across. And um, it's so it's so prominent in the you know the Japanese folklore that people have tried to come up with you know explanations for what it could possibly be. And um, one of the main explanations people say is that it could be a giant. Pacific octopus, which is the uh, basically the largest octopus in the world, which has a uh, you know they have arm spans of like fifteen sixteen feet um and they you know it could be something like that, still not hundred and ten feet or a hundred feet like some of the reports say, but maybe it was misidentified you know the people have tried to explain what they might have been seeing I suppose. You know, the giant octopus theory might be okay, but, yeah, maybe it was mixed with a little bit of folklore there. Yeah, yeah. Now, another, uh, I don't know what you'd even call it, another mystery that's attributed to the Ainu people is these uh, entities, for lack of a better term, called the uh, the Koro Pokuru. Koro Pokuru. There you go. Koro I got that one. I was close on that one. So t- this is really, really interesting. This is sort of like in the Elvish realm, in a sense. So tell me about the the, the Koro Pokuru uh, and, and right. what, what you know almost, about these. They're yeah, they're, they're in a way they're kind of like elves. They were um, little people, little hominids, I guess you could say. the The name, the Koro Pokuru is uh, basically the people who live under the burdock leaves. And burdock is a type of plant. It has a leaf about four feet across. So there are the people who, 
who live under these leaves, so they're really tiny. Um, they were they were also like the Akaro Kamui. They were mostly told about by the Ainu, the, the native people of Japan. Um, they were supposed to be about two or three feet tall, you know, like a toddler, basically. Um, some of the stories, some of the older stories say that they're only a couple inches tall, so you have a, you have a different size range, but uh, most stories say about two or three feet tall. They, they were said to live basically in peace with the Ainu people for a while. Um, the Ainu people didn't even think of them as a myth. They thought of them as just like a fact of life. Oh, the Koropukuru, they, they, they're over there. Yeah, we trade with them sometimes. Um, and they, they would trade with them. They would, uh, they had peaceful relations for a while with them. And these things were, looked kind of like, um, not really like gorillas or anything, but like rough looking primitive humanoids. They were said to have beards and said to, um, be kind of, uh, you know, really primitive, rough, like flat noses and prominent eyebrows and, um, squash noses and um, kind of hairy. They were said to have beards and, and have a lot of body hair, but they weren't really described as like apes or anything. And um, just kind of brutish, basically. And uh, they were known to use tools. They used uh, flint and stone knives, scrapers, things like that. Um, and the Ainu kind of just said, yeah, they were just our buddies for a while. And yeah, they lived out in the forests. They they kept to themselves. Um, there were some things that were different than the Ainu, like um, the Koropokuru made pottery. The Ainus didn't. Um, they they lived in pit dwellings, which is basically a, a hole in the ground with like a cover over it. And the Ainu didn't live in those, but the Koropokuru were said to live in pits, basically in the covered holes in the ground. They were said to be able to talk a little bit. They could talk a little bit with the Ainu. They weren't very good at talking, but they could do it. Yeah, they were shy, didn't really like the Ainu so much. They were shy. They kept their distance, but they would trade with them, and they would they would talk to them at times. And, um, you know, so far it sounds like, well, it sounds pretty normal, nothing really mysterious, but there's uh, no record of those things ever really existing. Hmm. Um, we only know about the Ainu. The Ainu swear up and down that, yeah, these things lived out in the forest. So it's been kind of a mystery as to what, okay, so they're saying there are these little people living out there trading with us. What what were these things? Uh, were they like um, some kind of miniature hominid or were they, you know, what were they? Yeah. So this has been kind of a mystery for a while. And the thing that with the Koropokuru is, is that they found, in a way, in a sense, they found evidence of things that these things may have really been out there. Um, they found pit dwellings out in the forest, the pits in the ground, which Ainu never used. Um, they found them. And uh, they found uh, examples of really, really old pottery, which Ainu don't make pottery even now they just don't do pottery and who's making all this pottery yeah um, they found little tools uh little tools and toys for hands that aren't really humans they're really unwieldy for a regular sized hand and i mean people could say that they're children's toys but i mean we're talking about knives and you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> weapons and stuff that i don't think 
these would be appropriate children's toys. So that's another weird thing that they've found. Um, there was a, a, a dig in Japan called the Omori Shell Mounds, which was um, an archaeological dig where they found a lot of these old um, artifacts. And they, they found things in there that were not really consistent, like the, the small size tools and the pottery. They weren't really consistent with Ainu. So it's it's kind of adds to the mystery a little bit. Like, okay, well, if Ainu doesn't do it, didn't do this, and they say there are these little people living out in the forest, these really kind of primitive-looking people, then maybe there's something to the stories. Did the Ainu ever explain, like, where these people went? Um, apparently, uh, they had kind of a falling out, and um, the old stories say that there was kind of like a war between them. Um, it's not really... It's not really... Um, I'm not really sure what caused it, mm. but apparently there was a, a war, and uh, the Ainu kind of drove them away. And uh, ever since then, they've kind of just dropped off the face of the earth like nobody knows where they went. And uh, maybe the Ainu killed them off. I mean, if they ever existed, maybe the Ainu killed them off. Maybe they pushed them out into the fringes of the wilderness. Yeah. But, um Regardless of what the reason was, they had some kind of falling out, some kind of war, and these things disappeared. And uh, all we have are these kind of scant evidence that people have dug up, kind of suggesting that maybe these stories are true, but, you know, where they went is kind of a mystery. It's like much like the Bigfoot. There's these stories of little people around everywhere, too, so it's... Right, right. The miniature hominids... Um, uh, Lauren Coleman used to call them proto-pygmies. And um, it's interesting that, you know, Japan is in the Pacific, and a lot of the South Pacific Islands, a lot of the Pacific Islands have these stories of proto-pygmies, miniature hominids. Um, and uh, one of the modern ways of tying it is uh, uh, the, the hobbits that they found down in, uh, you know, Indonesia, the the uh, Lawrence uh, or something. Like Rio, yeah, yeah, right. Flores Islands, the hobbits, the Rio hobbits, Homo floresiensis, and um, they think that maybe one of the theories is that maybe those things were more widespread than we know. Perhaps they found a way to settle in other islands around the Pacific, and uh, maybe that has something to do with uh, Koropokuru. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, as I was hearing this, like maybe that's one of the theories yeah. um, that could have something to do with it, but nobody really knows for sure. That that's that's a theory that I'm quite interested in. Uh, maybe those hobbits were um, not confined to that one little island as much as we think, and uh, that theory is interesting. The fact that there are a lot of you know, Pacific Islands where they've seen small creatures. Oh. Uh, so I've always kind of tied that to the story of the Koropokuru. Maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe they made it as far as Japan. It's entirely possible, yeah. Yeah, you just don't know, especially with the way continents were back in the day. You know, it may have been easier to get a right, around. Right. They may have been more mobile than we thought. Maybe they could make um, boats. Uh, maybe they could 
they could spread out themselves out better than we thought they could. So, yeah. It's entirely it's, possible. It's, I could definitely see from a modern perspective uh, us not giving them enough credit to be able to do that when they actually probably right. could, you know. We've only found their 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 uh, remains on Flores Island, but uh maybe maybe they they got farther than that. So, yeah, that that could be that could be connected to this case with the Ainus, but um yeah, it's weird that they kind of just disappeared, and we don't really know anything about it. It's, it's is it a story? Is it an old myth? Is it is it real? Is there is this real race that lived with the Ainu? Um, that's that's uh, interesting to me. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Me as well, absolutely. Now you, I think that kind of wraps up. Because we want to really sort of do an overall survey of your stuff, so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the non-Japanese stuff now. But what? Oh, right. Because <laughs> we could do, we could, we, we. I definitely want to have you back on the show. That's a given. So we'll we'll get into more oh, Japanese stuff in the future. But just one more sort of just general thing, because um, you know, the program been all of America. It kind of started out really heavily into UFOs and Bigfoot. And, um, you know, it's evolved over the years into all kinds of strange and unusual topics. Um, but, but part of the thing that was sort of gnawing at me when I originally wanted to do, uh, a program about Japanese paranormal stuff was, was the whole UFO mythos. Cause, cause I just right. don't ever hear much about, aside from this famous Japanese airliner case, um, mm-hmm. you really don't hear much about sort of the culture, of, of ufology over in Japan. So I guess what's it like over right. there? Just, to, you know, from a, from your perspective as someone who's pretty tuned into the paranormal, uh, world, what's your, what, what's your sense of, of sort of like the state of UFO interest and studies and, and, and lore over there in Japan? Uh, UFO is, ufology is very, very big over in Japan. Really? Um, oh yeah, it's, it's very, very popular. Um, there are a lot of TV shows that cover this kind of thing over here. Uh, Japanese <clears throat> have a real uh, strong interest in it, actually. Um, there are a lot of hot spots <clears throat> in Japan, actually, for UFOs. Um, Mount Fuji, actually, is one of them. Uh, Mount Fuji's been known to be quite, quite the hot spot of UFOs. All kinds of UFO sightings out there. Um, <clears throat> Usually, uh, when they have a major earthquake over here, or they have a, a major uh, volcanic eruption, which is, happens a lot in Japan, cause a lot of volcanic islands, um, those are usually almost always followed by a flap of UFO sightings yeah. that's covered quite a lot in the news. Huh. Um, and they, they, yeah, they, oh, they—it's it's big over here. General Nakatani was testifying to the Japanese parliament when somebody asked him, Antonio Inoki, a rather colorful figure in the parliament, asked him, what does he feel about UFOs? What does he know about UFOs? What can he tell us about the existence of UFOs, aliens, and whatnot? You're listening to Banal of America Audio. And General Nakatani said this, when the Air Self-Defense Force detects indications of an unidentified flying object that could violate our country's airspace, It scrambles fighter jets if necessary and makes visual observation. They sometimes find birds or flying objects other than aircraft, but I don't know of a case of finding an unidentified flying object believed to have come from anywhere other than Earth. 
Is it treated you're like more seriously than in America? Because I, I was going to mention, too, like my worlds collided in a way recently because uh, legendary pro wrestler slash politician Antonio Inoki, I don't know, I guess he asked the, Inoki, right? the <laughs> prime minister Inoki. about UFOs or something like that. So it was like my, my world of wrestling and the paranormal came together briefly uh, over in Japan because Antonio Inoki was asking about UFOs. So it's... Kind of right. interesting um, uh, that that it's even brought up like that. Although I know he's kind of a character, so uh, maybe it's not as serious. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely. I'm surprised you even know who that is. That's that's interesting. Yeah, you know, he was uh, talking about it, right? He, he's um, he's famous for fighting. Uh, what was it, Muhammad Ali, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> In the ring, but uh, yeah, you, Japanese approach this kind of thing, like even not just ufology, but cryptozoology as well. And basically, mysterious Fortiana in general, they they approach it with a pretty serious, more sober approach than in the states. I would say, uh, generally speaking, you know, in the states, it's treated like almost like, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily a joke, but you know, a lot of people watch these shows and, and it's kind of sensationalized and kind of like, oh, oh, come on, really. But in in Japan, they people kind of you know they think well maybe you know, let's check it out. Uh, they they have a very very level headed way of approaching these things. They're not so quick to dismiss or um, blow off things. And I think it may have to do with the culture. You know, they have such a long history of folklore and myth. And we've been talking about the Jimenken and the Koropokuru and all of these these folkloric creatures that may or may not exist that may be coming over into reality, you know, they may be based on real things. And I think perhaps that culture of the myth, mythological creatures may have something to do with that, you know. Hmm. They, they might they might think, well, yeah, there could be something to this. Let's not dismiss it out of hand. Let's uh, Let's look into it. Maybe there is something to this whole thing with UFOs or whatever it is. Um, I think they they tend to look at it with a very level-headed, very, you know, open-minded attitude. Yeah. Well, that's refreshing. We need more of that uh, over here in the States, that's for sure. So that's good to right. know. Right. The um, Japanese cryptoz- cryptozoological uh, publications here are not, you know, they're very, they're very serious and, and very open-minded. They're not playing to the audience and trying to sensationalize things. They just say, look, this is how it is. What do you think? Yeah. You know, they don't they don't make it into a big, oh, and oh, look at this, this creature from the forest. Wow. It's very, very sober. It's, it's, it's nice. It's a, it's a refreshing attitude to what I see on some sites yeah. uh, from the States. So, um, yeah, I, I think Japan has a very, very nice attitude towards it. Nice, nice. Well, if you know of any English-speaking Japanese ufologist, I'd love to get him on the show. So, uh, right, right. See if you can find I'll it. see what I can do. I'll <laughs> see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that I research on Japanese cryptids or Japanese uh, ufology and these things, I get from the original Japanese source. Right. So uh, I either I either translate it myself or I have somebody do it for me with the old Japanese. Some of the old Japanese is very difficult to understand even for Japanese people. So, I mean, it's like Shakespearean English. It's, hmm. 
it's um they it's you kind of have to decipher it a little bit so that stuff I'll have translated by a professional but how do you as a I presume you're American how do, as an American in Japan how do right. you even know of these stories how do you find I know you've been there almost 20 years but like I guess I guess just having an interest in speaking the language you find them right I mean how do they come across well, your Well yeah I, I yeah I get I, yeah I get these things from geez, so many different sources um now I know a lot of people who are uh kind of into that kind of stuff here. So I hear a lot of it from them. Um, I like to read some of these old uh, Japanese publications, and uh, they'll make mention of something strange, and I'll, I'll, I'll take a note of it, and then I'll look into it further. Mm. Sometimes, you know, I'll just be surfing the net and come across something weird, and there'll be nothing in English on it. And I'll think, well, why isn't there anything in English on this? So I'll go and look. In the original Japanese sources, and I'll I'll look into it myself, and I'll write about it. So I think a, a lot of the stuff that appeared on Cryptomundo originally was stuff that had never even been written about in English before, um, and I was kind of proud of that because I, I don't think there was any English literature on these things to begin with, really. I mean, maybe a little bit. But very basic stuff. So. Oh yeah, like I said at the beginning, dude. Hands down, you're doing some of the best work out there in the whole <laughs> in the whole realm of the paranormal. I'm not even I'm not oh, even joking. Thank you very much. Like I you, hope your so. stuff is absolutely invaluable to people like me who want to know about what really these stories from all over the place. It's like you're you're, you're right. producing stuff that <laughs> Americans have never seen before. It's amazing. So. And that was one of my aims when I first started writing on Cryptomundo was I, at first I was only writing about Japanese stuff and I thought, you know, this is stuff that, you know, English speakers, people who can't read Japanese should know about and I want, I want to get this out there so that a new audience, you know, English-speaking audience can take a look at it with their own eyes and come to their own conclusions and uh, give their own input on these things. I wanted to contribute something. So mm. if I was able to do that, then I'm very happy. Oh, <laughs> uh, you've gone above yeah. and beyond, man. Above and beyond, absolutely. Now, I, 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 as a, I'm a rabbit owner, and I've delighted at the videos of Rabbit Island, and I know about the Cat Island. Tell me a little bit about these <laughs> these crazy islands. And are there more other islands that have that are overrun with animals? <laughs> no, those are the only two that I know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Rabbit Island and the, the Cat Island is, it's interesting that you know about that. Yeah, the, the Cat Island is, uh, uh, pretty big news over here as well, you know. <laughs> Just these cats living out, nobody to watch them and, um, yeah, that's, that's, how did you find out about the Cat Island? Did you read about, did you someone, hear about that in the state? Yeah, someone made, so I think someone said, put a, posted a video of Rabbit Island on my Facebook and then, I was like, this is amazing. And then someone else, I think, was like, there's also a cat island. And I had a video yeah, I, I, an article or something. I don't know. I don't know about any other islands overrun with it. Yeah, but as, as long as we keep the rabbit island and the cat island separate, I don't think those those guys need to be mixed. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but uh, I, you know, that's a good question, though. I, I maybe I'll write an, I'll find something about that and write an article about it. I, I don't know about any others uh, like that. Yeah, it's very strange. Cat Island. The... How did yeah, he, the... do you do you know? Now I know you haven't written about this, so I'm kind of throwing this at you completely out of left field. So if it's uh, if it's if it if it is totally out of left field, just let me know. But how did the Rabbit Island? I, I presume. Well, we all know how rabbits are, but. How did how did it even get overrun with rabbits in the first place? Well, I think it was um, a couple people 
you know, they had some pet rabbits. They took them out there um, and uh, basically just let them run out, run around the yard and let them out, let them do whatever they want. And I think just some of them ran away and they just did what rabbits do. Yeah. And um, the place got over and there were no predators there. There were no, uh, nothing to keep them in line. And people just didn't mind. People just said, oh, they're cute rabbits. Let them go. Let them do whatever they want. And before they knew it, it became kind of an attraction Mm. And people were coming here to see the rabbits, and people started to look at them not as some escaped rabbits that needed to be recaptured, but as uh, like a tourist attraction. So they almost encouraged it and just let them pretty much overrun the island, basically. Yeah, it's pretty um, crazy. I'd like to go there, too. I, like I said, Japan's – I'm a diehard wrestling fan, so I actually know – a fair amount about Japan, just because Japan's like right. Oh, you know, <laughs> I used to, yeah, I used, to, I used to be big into wrestling back way back in the eighties, uh, the Ultimate Warrior, Rowdy Roddy Piper days. So, <laughs> yes. I don't know about the, uh, <laughs> I don't know about the state of wrestling in Japan now, but yeah, it's it's pretty big over here actually. Yeah, it's amazingly <laughs> big. So I grew up reading about the, you know, it truly is. A land of sort of uh, a, a, of myth and legend. Reading about all these stories and all these guys over there, and it's you know. So I've always kind of oh yeah been been interested in uh, you know what the, the culture of Japan. Someplace I've definitely always wanted to go. Uh, Japan just yeah they they just take it to another level on some of these old stories and myths and folklore. They become almost like pop culture, like. Uh, uh, the Jimenken, we talked about the human-faced dogs. Are, you know, Everybody knows what they are. Everybody's heard of them. And you can go out and buy T-shirts with these things on them. I mean, it becomes almost like pop culture. The, the, the kappa, which is like a, another cryptid in Japan. It's mm. like a little miniature kind of turtle-like reptilian humanoid that lives in the rivers here. Those are very popular over here. They, they appear in animation and comic books. And um, yeah, they, I mean, some of these cryptids and and folkloric creatures are almost like rock stars over here, and uh, they just become part of the mainstream culture. Which I, I've never, you know, in the states, it doesn't. It's not really like that. You don't. I mean, Bigfoot's more of a niche thing over there, but here a lot of the cryptids are mainstream. You know, everybody knows about it. Everybody kind of speculates about it. Um, that's interesting to me. There's definitely a different attitude towards these things uh, between the two countries. Yeah. Yeah. Now, my friend who lived in Japan, he meant he said I should mention the gang, the Ganguro Yamamba girls. Some kind of fashion. Oh, the Ganguros. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Those are not as they're not as popular as they once were. Yeah. Yeah. But um, especially when I first came out to Japan. In the 90s, those were big over here. That could almost be a mystery in and of itself. But right, yes, we said, yeah, it's a very strange Oh, uh, dark, thing, yeah. black hands, I mean black. They are about as tanned as you can be. And um, just these long nails made up with these bright pink and green and blue. Just bizarre, almost decrypted in their own right. And um, they, they used to be all over the place. And not not so much anymore. Uh, very loud, very boisterous. Um, oh yeah, the Ganglo girls. That, that's interesting. That your friend knows about that. Yeah. About them. Yeah. Um, 
it's one of the subcultures here, and a lot of different subcultures like that over here in Japan. Yeah, it's really um, interesting. It's 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 a really interesting place. I'd love to I'd love to go there and check it out. I think I probably will eventually, since I've got kind of uh, the connection. Oh yeah, if you ever friend. come. If you ever come out here, I'll show you around. I know all the weird stuff that might not even be in the, you know, the tour books. So I'm sure, I'm sure of that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to have to make it happen sometime in the future. <laughs> oh, for sure, for sure. Now, you also, as we said at the beginning, you you started out writing about Japanese stuff, but then moved, uh, you know, you evolved as, of sorts into sort of just strange and unusual other stories as well. Um, and oh, I, yes. I, I picked some of those just to talk about here at, towards the end of the show. Now, tell tell me about this one. For some reason, kind of hit a nerve with me in a not not on the bad way, in a sort of like made the made, I don't know tapped into something in my mind or something. The carnivorous cryptid plants. Ah, uh, the cryptid plants. Yeah, yes. yeah. Various plants around the world that have been you know ascribed <laughs> to be man eating. Tell right. me about some of these tales. There are cryptid plants in the world that everybody knows about, like the Venus flytrap, and um, you get these pitcher plants where um, you know they they lure in bugs or even sometimes rodents for some of the larger ones and eat them. But there have been stories around the world for a long time of things that are even bigger that um, eat you know deer, uh, dogs, humans, and um, <clears throat> Yeah, there are quite a few of them around the world. Probably, I would say, the most famous one uh, would be the, it's called the Man-Eating Tree of Madagascar. And uh, this was a, a tree that um, was basically first discovered, I don't know if you'd say discovered, but first known to the Western world by a German explorer, um, Karl Litsch. And it was in the, the, the end of the 1800s, 1878, I think. And um, he he talked about how he went to this village, and the tribes people brought out a woman to sacrifice to this tree. And um, he kind of said it was uh, had these tendrils or uh, tentacles, I guess you would say, that were. Like looked like branches, but as soon as they brought the woman there, these things kind of grabbed her and uh, started basically eating her. It was about eight feet high, um, looked kind of like a, a pineapple with tentacles, and it just kind of sucked her into this pineapple thing in the middle and uh, ate her. And the, when he talked to the tribes people about it, they said that it it had these drugs that could stun its prey, you know, put it to sleep so that it could be peacefully digested. And uh, this was kind of a graphic account. And um, it it caught the interest of a few other explorers, actually. And um, one of them was actually, I think it was the governor of um, Michigan back in the 1900s, 1910 or 11, there was a, uh, the governor of Michigan which was uh, Chase Osborne, he went there looking for it because he had heard the story and he thought, wow, I'm going to go check this out. And he looked through it. He didn't find it, but um, he found a bunch of uh, missionaries and uh, native people who said that, no, 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 it's really out there. It's really out there. Kind of weird that nobody could show him where it was. Yeah. But um, <laughs> he, 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 oh, yeah, everybody said, oh, yeah, it's, it's out there. It's out there. And then there was another expedition 
by a Czech explorer, and this was in 1998. This was not that long ago. Yeah, wow. Uh, Ivan Makurl, uh, he went out there, and um, he found some natives that told him that it was real, and they also told him about another one, which is called the uh, Kamanga Killer Tree, which they said had these flowers that shot poisonous gas, and they they did know where it was. So they said, oh, yeah, we'll we'll take you there. And um, McCurl said, all right, well, that sounds good to me. And they were so freaked out and so sure that the natives were telling the truth that they actually had gas masks when they went out to go see this. And they, they didn't find they, – they found a tree with, like, animal skeletons underneath it, but they didn't see any flowers. And the natives were saying, well, it's because it's not in bloom. And um, – Weird. Who knows if it was true or not, but he found these animal skeletons just all underneath this tree, which is kind of weird. Um, but uh, nobody ever really found the Madagascar man-eating tree. And uh, it's, I think this is another story that kind of like the mysterious islands kind of captures people's imaginations. It plugs into some uh, un subconscious thing in our minds about these plants that live out in the forest eating people you know what i mean like yeah right? yeah that's what like i said it kind of resonated with me in a way because yeah felt... i think that resonates with people for some reason and um that's why i wanted to write this article it, it, i was the same uh and uh, i went about collecting all these stories um another one was uh this thing called the nicaraguan vampire vine and uh this this was a story that um i i found it in this article, and it was the uh, original article, and it told this story about this guy named Dunstan, who was uh, out studying plants in uh, Nicaragua, and uh, he wasn't looking for anything weird. He wasn't even there looking for cryptid plants or anything. He was just studying the, the plant life of the area, and um, he was out there with his, he, I guess he had his dog with him, and he hears his dog you know, whining and barking, and he he looks around and he 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 goes looking for where his where his dog is, and he finds these vines kind of just wrapped around his dog, just squeezing it, and there's blood coming out of these wounds on the dog, and he he tried to get his dog free, and they the, he says the vines were wrapping around his arms, and when he pulled his hand away, they left like sucker marks. <laughs> on his hands, and um, when he talked to the natives, they said it was the it was the vampire vine, and they all oh, they drink blood. And uh, he actually went and studied these vines apparently, and he wrote about it, and he 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 talked about how they were able to catch their prey with these like mini suction cups along the vines. And he, he wrote quite a lot about it, actually. And they, it, would, it would suck the blood, and he would throw meat into it and watch what would happen. And they would suck the blood out of the meat. But uh, apparently he just, as these things frustratingly often go, he kind of stopped his studies and went off to study other things, and nobody really knows what, what he found. Hmm. So that was, that was another really, really weird account that I had never known about even until I started looking into it. I knew about the Madagascar tree. It's and uh, that was one of the weird 
stories. And there were a lot of weird ones. Um, uh, South America has a lot of weird, Central and South America has a lot of carnivorous plants. Um, there's one called the Yat, Yate Veo, and um, it has apparently spikes that it'll, it'll impale victims and suck their blood out. Um, there was another one in, uh, in South America and Brazil. They have this thing called the Devil Tree, which um, it basically hides its vines or whatever it is along tentacles, whatever you want to call it, yeah. under the underbrush. And when something walks over them, they'll apparently snap up and uh, grab whatever it is and just basically constrict them to death and then suck their blood out. Apparently these things like blood. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's really <laughs> weird is like, you know, it's just up until I read your article on this stuff, I had never even like considered it. But then when you read it, it's like, it makes a lot, you know, it kind of makes sense in a weird way where it's like, wow, maybe there are plants that are <laughs> that, that are carn- that are carnivorous to humans. Yeah, there could know? be. I mean, they already know of them with the Venus flytrap exactly, and yeah, the yeah. plant. And they, these things are, you know, they, they're known by science and they use animal protein to get extra nutrients that they can't normally get. So maybe there's something bigger. I mean... It is weird that they're able to move so fast with these tentacles and stuff. That might be kind of exaggerated, perhaps, but it, I wouldn't say it's completely implausible. Um, especially some of these plants aren't, don't even really move that much. Like um, there's one that's called the monkey trap tree, which is, uh, I think it's from Guyana. And uh, that thing is basically a huge pitcher plant. And it makes this scent that apparently monkeys can't resist. And monkeys will come. They they love this smell. And um, they fall into it, and they're just digested just like a regular pitcher plant. Pitcher plants, um, for listeners who are listening, I, I don't know if you know what a pitcher plant is, but it's almost like a, like a, like a bowl with... Uh, some kind of scent usually and it attracts animals sometimes even rodents or lizards and they'll come to check it out and fall into this digestive liquid and they can't get out and they're just digested alive by the plants so something like um this monkey trap tree from guyana sounds like it's plausible um, yeah, it's weird. It's like almost it, it 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 goes to a strange sort of line in that I never considered. Uh, like talking to right. you, like like a, it's like where's the line of like sentience in this whole thing? You know what I mean? It's like does the well, does the yeah. plant know? Like the plant has to know. I don't know. It's weird. The plant, you know. It's, it, there's actually a story that 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 kind of suggests that one one of the stories that I found. Um, when I was doing that article, was uh, this tree in the Philippines. And um, basically, this uh, this guy from Mississippi, he was in the Philippines. I think he wanted to farm there. He wanted to open up some kind of plantation. He was a planter. And he was with a guide, and they, they came to this tree, this huge tree, and it smelled like, like rotten meat. And... Uh, Apparently, they saw a human skull under it, and the guy went to look, and when he wasn't looking at the tree, the guide said that it was actually moving towards him, and when the planter from Mississippi looked up, it would it would stop. 
and when he went back to look at the skull, this thing was moving again. And it's it's kind of a weird story. I don't know if it's if it's um, if it really happened or not. But according to the story, the, it was almost as the tree knew yeah. that he was looking at it, which was that that story struck me as quite bizarre. And um, every time he looked away, the guide said, "Be careful! That thing's moving towards you." And finally, I guess he he got the hint and he. He got away from the tree, but yeah, that that's kind of weird. You wonder if there's some sentience involved there. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's very odd. Some rudimentary sense of whether the prey is looking at it or not. Yeah, uh, some of them are quite realistic. Uh, other other plant stories were n- not as much. There's a, a tree in India that apparently ate cows, and this is a pretty recent story from. 2007, as a matter of fact, this village in India, um, this this cow herder said that a tree grabbed his cow and actually pulled it up off the ground and um, basically started to eat it. And villagers came in and uh, hacked at the tree until it let go. And uh, <laughs> it's it's kind of a uh, you wonder if a tree could really pick up a cow off the ground, but apparently this happened, and the, the locals call it the tiger tree. Uh, yeah, some of these stories are maybe not as believable as others, but I think the idea of carnivorous plants that can eat large prey are, are um, plausible. Yeah, yeah. It could it certainly seems that way. I mean, just, yeah, it makes sense. Like I said, it's something I never even considered before. Now, one thing I have considered before uh, is the story of the Devil's Bible. It had crossed my path a few months ago, and I kind of had jotted it down uh, in my notes for, you know, to see if I could ever dig more into it. And lo and behold, right. as I was going through the Brent Swanser archive, there was a, a piece on the mystery of the Devil's Bible. So tell people about this, because it is creepy. Oh, yeah, so the... The Devil's Bible, they call it, the real name is the Codex Gigas, um, and uh, it's a huge book. It's from the 13th century. Um, they call it the Giant Book because it's so big. I mean, this thing is huge. It's like uh, 36 inches tall. Um, it's It weighs like 165 pounds. Oh, my God. Um it's it's enormous. It's supposedly the largest known medieval manuscript. It's all bound up uh with this leather cover and um it's 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 already impressive just looking at it, but it gets a little bit weirder when you go into the stories behind it. So the first thing is is that it has about 300 a little over 300 pages in it and they're all made out of animal skin of some kind. Um they think it was maybe donkey or calf skin. And they say that about 160 animal skins were needed to make it. So that's already kind of weird. It's just this huge leather book full of animal skin pages. And um, inside of it is just reams of text of all kinds. They've got an encyclopedia. They've got magical spells. They've got medical texts. They've got all kinds of stuff in there, mostly in Latin. Uh, some of it's in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, all of it's illuminated, which means that they've got decorations on the letters and everything looks really nice. But the weirdest thing about it is that 
the whole book is written by one person in one handwriting style. And they say that this thing is so big that if somebody was writing this thing, it would take around five years of writing all day and all night, probably more like 25 years if you think about the guys not writing all day and all night. Right. It would take years and years and years to write this text, yet it's completely uniform. Like this writing never wavers. It never shows any sign of it. the person aged or the person was sick. It's completely uniform throughout. It was all written by one person. They've got all of these it's just really, really meticulously designed pages. And um, in, the, in the middle of it, and the reason it's called the Devil's Bible, is that there's this huge picture of the devil. And there's a story behind this, and I'll get to it in a moment. But mm-hmm. this picture of the devil is uh, really, really weird in that the pages around it are said to be kind of blackened. All of the pages leading up to the devil and the pages after the devil are, are kind of blackened around the edges, which kind of is a little bit ominous. And um, nobody really knows you know, how this handwriting is so uniform throughout this huge text. It looks like somebody, one person, did the whole thing. It doesn't deviate at all. Another weird thing about the is that there's ten, I think it's nine or ten pages missing from this book and nobody knows where they went or what was on them or why they were taken out. There's just some pages missing throughout the book. And um, one of the stories behind this Devil's Bible is that, um, and I, I think it's kind of, I, I think these old books are really interesting in, in the fact that, um, you know, it's it's almost like you're holding a piece of history in your hand. When you hold that book, you're holding the same book that somebody else held hundreds of years ago. And I think that that has a uh, that also resonates with people. And um, in this, in the case of this particular book, they say uh, one of the stories behind it is there was this monk who lived in Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic now. It used to be known as Bohemia, and uh, apparently he was. He did something against his monastery that really kind of pissed them off. <laughs> yeah. And um, he was sentenced to be walled into the walls of the monastery. And apparently he said, well, okay, you know, I don't really want to be walled up <laughs> in the walls of the monastery. I'll tell you what, I'll write this huge book, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. I'm going to write this enormous religious text and if I can finish this in one night, you let me out. Deal? You know, and I guess the, the monastery said, all right, all right, yeah, go ahead. Whatever. Go for it. Yeah. And um, the guy apparently figured out pretty fast that he couldn't do this and called up the devil. And the devil said, all right, I'll help you finish it. If you put my picture in there and um, if you give me your, oh, yeah, and if you give me your soul. <laughs> the guy said, oh, well, yeah, okay, um, uh, I don't want to be walled up in the wall of this monastery deal. And then the, the devil helped them do it. And that's why they say that it's so uniform throughout is because the guy only wrote it in one night. And it's, yeah, it's a, it, it sounds like a, just a story, but um, the book itself has a lot of weird things that have happened over the years. And... Um, changed hands 
you know, after from from that monastery was passed around to a couple other monasteries, and it it uh it ended up in some museums, and um, it ended up in the the Czech National Library, and they ended up returning it. it it went over to Sweden for a while, and it's changed hands, but no matter where it goes, there are all kinds of, um, they say it's cursed, because wherever it goes, something bad happens. So, um, for example, um, when it was at the, uh, I think it was the Royal Swedish Library, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, um, there was a big fire there that... Um, Pretty much burned everything at the time, but somebody managed to get the devil's Bible, throw it out the window. <laughs> I guess they thought that was the best way to save it at the time. Threw it out the window. It goes out the window. It, it lost a bunch of pages, which they've never found. And, um, you know, they say the fire had, and the, and the fact that this book survived has something to do with the mysterious, you know, uh, curse behind it. Yeah. Um, that happened in the 1600s. Um, also, uh, you know, there have been people who, over the years who've had this book that that say that it causes disease. You know, people have gotten diseases, strange, rare diseases, and died. Oh, God. Um, accidents. Uh, people who have had the book have seen accidents where people have died, like freak accidents. And uh, one of the, the things about this book is that people think it's it's cursed, so um, it's it's Very kind of weird. interesting. Yeah. It's a huge book. Nobody knows who wrote it. Nobody knows why they wrote it. It's it's pretty big undertaking for one person to write about all this weird miscellaneous stuff. Yeah. Now I presume why you could go you and like check it out if uh, you're in the Czech Republic sometime, right? If you, uh, is it available? Oh yeah. You, you 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 could yes. You could definitely check it out. I think um, they have also a digitized version of it. They've they've totally digitized it so people can go and look uh, at what it says on, on the computer screen. The book itself is uh, kind of covered in glass. You're not allowed to go rifle through yeah, it. Or yeah, anything, yeah, yeah. Have a look <laughs> yeah. at it. Um, I think it's at, uh, at in Sweden right now, actually. Um, the National Library of Sweden, I think it is at currently. Um, it was at Czech National Library, and then it moved. It, it's, it's moved around quite a bit, actually. Yeah, so it bounces around, and, yeah. Uh, and um, I don't think you're allowed to actually touch it, but it is some. It is a weird piece of history that um, people might want to go check out. It, it's absolutely huge. On the site, you can probably see pictures of it. In yeah, the yeah, it's massive. It's um, very intriguing. It's definitely. Yeah, I don't know if I'd want to touch it to be honest with you. Uh, it seems. No, a little, a little no, too I would, don't think. Me. I think the digitized version will work nicely <laughs> for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, well. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's been it's been surrounded by by curses throughout its history. I mean, all the monasteries that had it had fires, and the library that had it had a fire, and people get sick and they die yeah, so it's, yeah. it's become kind of this this kind of mysterious text that has this aura of ominous you know evil around it mm. so that was one of the things that drew me to that article especially because um i think ancient texts are very interesting to begin with so when you get one that has so much this dark imagery around it 
that's very interesting to me. Absolutely, yeah. Now, another one that's kind of in that same realm is the lost documents and mysterious wildlife of, of Mauritius. Mauritius, yes, yes, right. I did pretty good on that one. So tell me, <laughs> tell me about this one, because it's another sort of like lost... You know, I'm fascinated by, like, lost information or information that goes, lo- you know, like the Library yeah. of Alexandria type stuff, you know? So this is kind of a right, little bit right. like this, that idea. Th- this is definitely like that. It's just, it's, it's a piece of history that we had that was lost, and, and now we find it. And basically with this, this article, with uh, the wildlife of Mauritius, um, this island, Mauritius, is probably most famous to listeners as uh, where the dodo lived. Um, everybody probably knows the dodo. It was a, a large kind of flightless bird that was uh, native to Mauritius, and it's kind of almost become synonymous with uh, extinct creatures, things that went out. But it wasn't the only animal that went extinct on Mauritius. And this is, a, for those who don't know, Mauritius is a small uh, island in the Indian Ocean. It has... Uh, a large amount of indigenous wildlife that are found nowhere else, I mean, endemic animals, and um, a lot of them are extinct. And the thing about the, uh, the wildlife of Mauritius is that um, it was originally colonized by the Dutch, and uh, they were very, very bad at keeping records of wildlife there. They didn't have any real interest in the animals or the plants that live there. So what you get is mostly uh, accounts of which animals are good to eat or <laughs> how to catch them. or <laughs> Nobody really knew anything about them. Even the dodo, which is very famous to everybody, nobody really knows anything about it because when it, was ex- when it existed, when it was alive, nobody really cared about it. Nobody really wrote about it. I mean, even the, even the pictures of it are not consistent. They're all these illustrations that not always look the same, so nobody really knows even what the dodo looked like. So that was interesting to me that we have all these animals that went extinct and nobody really ever knew anything about them. They're just gone. We kind of know of them, but who knows? Maybe there were other animals that were just as interesting as the dodo that nobody knows because nobody wrote about it at the time. So basically, Mauritius is kind of like this black hole of these extinct species that nobody knew anything about for years. And um, what caused me to write this article is that there was news about how this um, this researcher found these lost documents, basically. Um, and uh, they were all untranslated. They were all in Dutch. And um, it was actually, her name was uh, Ria Winters from uh, the London National History Museum. And she was, uh, I don't think she was particularly looking for anything of Mauritius in particular, but she came across these documents that hadn't been translated and that had been written by uh, this guy who had been there and assigned to kind of catalog things so that um, settlers could know more about the island. Um, his name was Pretorius, and um, he went there on a completely unrelated mission uh, to check out this 
camp that they had lost contact with. And he went there, and he ended up staying there for a few years, and I guess he was tasked with uh, writing about how the suitability of this island for human habitation. And he wrote all these notes about all these animals that that nobody had really ever written about in any detail before. And um, these documents were lost until, you know, just recently when uh, when they were found, just in a, amongst a bunch of other documents that were laying around that nobody ever really looked at before. And um, they shed a whole bunch of light on some of the animals that nobody knew about in Mauritius yeah. before. Some strange so, birds. A lot of strange birds, it seems. Yeah, a lot of strange birds. Like um, there was this uh, this one called the raven parrot, or um, uh, the broadbill parrot. They call it sometimes, and nobody really I mean, we knew of it. That that had been mentioned in notes before, but this had all these interesting details about it, like. Um, they they weren't able to fly even though they could they they didn't so they 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 could fly but they they didn't and um they were very aggressive and they would chase people and they would uh chase away dogs even oh wow and nobody really knew that before um they were bright colored rather than dark colored and people thought they used to be uh dark in color um this, this 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 parrot nobody really knew about. It's this ground, this really grumpy uh, <laughs> yeah. parrot that 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 doesn't want to fly because I I guess he they figured that you know I'm tough I don't have to fly and nobody really wanted to go near it and that was a that was a bird we didn't really know that about before uh, before these documents were found. Um, yeah. There was also another one called uh, was it the red rail um, and. It had been mentioned before, and but mostly it was known just for not being a good bird to eat. But um, <laughs> through these documents, they 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 figured out probably why it went extinct. That it was really brightly colored. It was really stupid. It would go up to hunters. It would just just go right up to people just to be killed off. Um, nobody really knew that that about them before. Um, other things that were in there were like what the tortoises ate, the, the Mauritius giant tortoise, which is a subspecies of giant tortoise. Um, what they ate, it had stuff about the effects of all the introduced animals like rats that came to the island. This is things that really nobody had any insight into before. All found because this lady stumbled across these documents in, a, in the library I mean, this could have been lost forever. I thought that was very interesting that these extinct species, now we know something about them because she just kind of accidentally found this stuff. Yeah. I think that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's amazing the stuff that's out there that we don't even know about uh, or lo is lost. Even even, right. And you, you wonder what, you know, you wonder like um, what kind of other things that would, you know, give us some some insight uh, are locked away somewhere in some warehouse or museum. I mean, this happens with even fossils and things. They mm. find a fossil locked away in some basement of a museum for some new species that we never knew about. And that's interesting to me. I wonder how many, 
how many things we already have that just nobody's really looked at in any great detail that we could learn something from. I, you know, I imagine the Indiana Jones warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark with exactly. the <laughs> Lost Ark of the government and stacks stacks of these boxes in some warehouse. I, I, I always imagine that when I think of these things. And well, what else is there, you know, we could find if we just look? Yeah, yeah. That's well, that, to me. in a way, that kind of sums up your stuff, man. It's like, what else is out there if we just look? So it's, it's, uh. Right, I'm you, always digging around. I'm always digging around. <laughs> found some good stuff. Let me see. Well, let's, let me see which one I want to wrap it up on. Do you got any, uh, preference on one you, last one we want to talk about? The oh, sewer, 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 every... beasts, where birds go to die, uh, me, oh, we got so many. Too. Yeah, there's got so, so many. many on here, folks. Uh, the mysterious cannibal monks of India. Uh, okay, I know the last one I want to do because I've never heard this story before, and uh, hopefully it's one of your more favorite stories. It's a, it's the mysterious lost expedition for the city of Z. Uh, oh yes, yes, yes. This is uh actually one of the one of my favorites. Good, good. That's um, a perfect one to wrap it up with. So tell me about this uh this I've never even heard of a lost city of Z, much less that there was a lost expedition to find it. So what's the story of this whole uh tale? Okay, well this is another uh, another topic that I think people uh, that resonates with people. This is um the idea of a uh, a lost city out in the middle of a jungle somewhere. Um you know, lost civilizations. I I think this is um very interesting uh for people. And this is this article is about one of these lost cities that was um uh, there was an expedition made by a guy called Percy Fawcett. And uh, Percy Fawcett was interesting in the fact that he was basically Indiana Jones. <laughs> I mean, they even say that um, Indiana Jones was kind of a little bit based on this guy. And he was a real-life Indiana Jones. And um, uh, he was originally uh, a surveyor. And uh, he was surveying. I'm going to keep this short because this is a, this is quite a long story. Mm-hmm. But um, he was with the Royal Geogra- Geological Society, um, and he was supposed to map parts of South America. And um, so he was a explorer in South America originally, trying to map out, you know, draw draw boundaries for some of these areas, draw borders. And um, he had kind of always been interested in lost cities and lost treasures so he's out in the jungle and um he had kind of a reputation as being indestructible basically he um where everybody else was dropping dead from you know diseases or parasites and he just seemed to never really be bothered by any of this stuff he was like um the quintessential indestructible jungle explorer and um, he became kind of obsessed he came across some documents of this lost city that he called Z and um, he became kind of obsessed with it really and it was out in the um, the jungles of the Amazon right out in the South America Mm -hmm. and he became pretty pretty infatuated with this idea of the city and he had a really good idea of where it was and what it would look like. And um, he launched a few expeditions to go look for this place. And um, uh, 
most of them were very well funded and uh, he was very well provisioned and they came across all kinds of weird things um there were a couple cryptids apparently that um he came across like giant snakes that are way way larger than um they're supposed to be and um he came up he he discovered a cryptid that they call the the Fawcett's cat dog which is uh uh only known from his accounts and uh it, it was like a, a cross between a, a some kind of canid and a cat huh. that he he wrote notes on so he he came across a couple things like that the insects that nobody knew about like ants that he said sprayed acid so i mean already it's an interesting story he's coming across these weird creatures out on his expeditions um and um but his main goal was the city that he called z Mm-hmm. And uh, he he launched a few expeditions, and none of them were successful. But he at least he always came back. Um, <laughs> and and a lot, a lot of his, a lot of his expeditions um, had some inspiration for uh, pretty famous works. Like uh, he was friends with uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote The Lost World, which a lot of people may know. Yeah. Um, basically, based on one of his expeditions. Um, he uh he found these uh large flat topped mountains and he speculated that maybe there would be dinosaurs or um creatures from the past living up there in the clouds and that actually inspired Arthur Conan Doyle to write his book. So um he he was pretty influential in these expeditions. Um but probably uh his most famous expedition that he he mounted was um the one where he disappeared his last and, uh, expedition <laughs> his last expedition so <laughs> yeah <laughs> he 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 had a whole bunch of ones that he he did that didn't go through as planned they had to turn back for some hardship disease whatever i mean one of them his his uh expedition mates got parasites that were like eating away their eyeballs oh, and God. all kinds of freaky things were happening and he had he had all kinds of setbacks and of course he was unfazed by all of it he seemed to never get sick and um he finally went out i'm gonna do this once and for all and he thought he had everything planned um and he went on this expedition in the 1920s um he uh he was very well prepared. He he kept it small. He kept the expedition small because he had had problems in the past with aggressive natives. Um, he found that when he had big groups, the natives thought that was a threat. And although he never attacked the natives, he had kind of a peaceful, no no contact uh policy he wanted to stay out of the native's life but he was attacked quite a few times he had um expedition members die he found one expedition member with like 40 arrows in his back oh god one time so they weren't really throwing the welcome mat out for him so he kept this one small it was just a few people his good friend he, it was uh rally rimmel and his son jack fawcett and a couple laborers and um, this is a small expedition, but very well provisioned, very well equipped. Um, they had some society, scientists, societies, and newspapers were funding them. Um, 
everything was plotted and planned. Um, he was sure he knew where this city was. And uh, basically they went out in 1925 to, uh, to find it, and they got to the end of mapped territory. So they were, they were going into a place that nobody had really ever seen before. No Westerners had ever seen it before. And, um, you know, he said, okay, here we go. They went out, disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to them. And uh, after a while, they thought, well, that's weird. He was indestructible. No, nothing ever happened to him. He was a very successful explorer. He, well, what's going on here? This would become the launch pad for other expeditions that would go out looking for him. Of trying to find out what happened to his expedition, and they're almost as mysterious as his expedition. <laughs> like, um, there's uh, well, one of the uh, his his one of his other sons uh, made a couple of trips out there, and um, he came across some weird little things that um, kind of makes you wonder what happened. Like, uh, he was told that. There was an old man who had been walking around in the forest that said his name was Fawcett before disappearing out into the forest again. And he thought, well, maybe that was my dad. But, you know, nothing ever came of it. He, he went out there looking again, didn't find anything. Um, there were other expeditions that went out there that apparently found other trinkets and artifacts, like um, they found... Uh, like I think it was a chest with his name on it. Hmm. Uh, they found some other trinkets that tribal that tribes around there said were given to them by white men who had been lost in the forest, and all these little things that kind of um, they were frustrating in a way because they didn't prove anything, but they were just enough to spike interest for people to keep looking. And uh, one of the weirdest ones was uh, there was this. Uh, movie star back in the 30s who uh, Albert de Winton was his name and um, he was known for these low budget kind of B B movies um, jungle adventure movies and he, he made it in this big publicity thing where he was dressed up as a as a jungle explorer and hey I'm going to go out and find what happened to Fawcett and he apparently also disappeared um, and the only thing they know about him is that an Indian runner came and gave the, the crew a note, and it said, hey, I'm being held captive by a tribe. Help me. And <laughs> he was never seen again. <laughs> he was never seen again. He went out all bravado. Hey, look at me. I'm a jungle. He was dressed up in this Halloween costume, basically, as a jungle explorer. I mean, just a... Weird. Just a jerk really he went on he 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 disappeared as well um a couple other expeditions have gone out and disappeared um they found hints and clues like um there was some remains found that were supposedly of uh faucet and they turned out to be the remains of just a, an indian um they found uh footage where they show uh a bunch of tribes people riding canoes and among them is a, a guy who looks obviously like a white man uh, riding a canoe. Um, that was footage that was uncovered for one of the documentaries about uh, Fox's expedition. That's kind of weird. Um, 
But there have been like 13 expeditions to go out there looking for them, and all of them have found these enticing clues, like trinkets and things uh, uh, that supposedly were from the Fawcett expedition, and nobody's ever found what happened to them. And they have all, all kinds of theories about what happened, like, oh, maybe they... One of the theories is that they left civilization and decided to live with the tribes out there, and even that they became the leader of a tribe. Um, there are other theories that say they were killed by cannibals. There was another theory that said that he intentionally threw people off his trail. Um, he had the idea all along that he was going to leave civilization behind and, and find his city and live there forever. So um, a lot of the expeditions are looking in the wrong place hmm. because he left the wrong coordinates behind when he his last known coordinates, they say, were probably maybe intentionally misleading so that nobody would ever come looking for him. And he had told everybody when before he left, don't come looking for me, which huh. is also a little bit weird. If I That's disappeared, weird. don't come looking for me. And of course, people did go looking for him, but they think that he intentionally left bad coordinates behind and that he lived out the rest of his days either with a tribe or that he did find this city, this magnificent lost city of gold. He said that it was it was like streets of gold and um, that he found this city. Maybe he found it and he stayed there. So there's all kinds of theories about it. Yeah, very A lot strange. of weird theories as well. Um, there are some weird theories. Apparently there were some uh, letters written to the Fawcett family that said, oh, we know where your father was and oh, he found... The, he found an underground opening to this this lost underground world. This was uh, most famous in the 1960s. This guy named Lucknor, who had a had a cult called the Magic Nucleus. Um, he, this is one of the more far out theories, but he claimed that um, Fawcett found this spiritual realm underground, and that he was able to enter there because he. He was worthy. Uh, that was one of the weirder theories. That's and apparently the yeah. UFOs come out of there and uh, it, was, it was weird. It was a letter that the family received in the 60s. There were other, a lot of letters like that that, that kind of pointed to weirder things. I tend to think that he probably just his luck ran out. He, yeah. he undertook this expedition and maybe, you know, there are all kinds of things that could have happened in the jungle. Yeah, they were they were sending the Fawcett family mail saying we know what happened. We know what happened to Fawcett. Um, he didn't disappear into the jungle. He disappeared under the jungle. And there there were these stories about how he how he um, went into this underground subterranean world. And there was another letter actually in 1956, I believe it was, that. Um, also said he had been living in a subterranean city. So there were a few letters that said he had found some opening to this underground world, a lost world where he lived out the rest of his days. How um, did, I'm going to just jump and ask, how did, how did this dude who wrote the letters allegedly even know this? Just because he was like connected to the underground world as well? He claims. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Apparently, uh, he he um 
Yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually sure um, how he knew this, but apparently he was um, a doctor, uh, Dr. Henrique de Souza, and he was the president of some uh, society of uh, weird phenomenon, and um, <laughs> he claimed it was called, uh, what is it, the Sociedade de Teosofica Brasileira, and I guess it's a society that deals with 14 uh, things of all kinds, and um, he claimed that that's where he went. And uh, then you had Lucknor, who was the, the the leader of this cult. He called himself the high priest of this cult, and um, he claimed that, yeah, he went into this portal into this magical world. And that cult was disbanded, actually, because they were an apocalyptic cult, and they had predicted the end of the world, which never happened, obviously. And um, they kind of uh, disbanded, but that was one of the weirder leads that has come up over the years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- th- nobody really knows what happened to him. The, one of the more popular theories is that he went native, basically. And Fawcett had already said before in some of his diary entries and things that he had, um, that, that he was very uh, drawn to the idea of going native and that there was no shame in it. And um, he thought it was a noble thing to do. So that that's one of the little hints that makes people think that maybe he just decided to stay out there and live with the natives. Um, that and the fact that he said, you know, don't ever, don't anybody come looking for me if I go missing, which is kind of a weird thing to say. Yeah. And um, the fact that, you know, nobody knows... What became of him. Yeah, he, he was a very experienced explorer. He knew what he was doing. He was, everything was mapped out. He knew where he was going. He was totally prepared... And then he just disappears without any kind of contact or anything. And there were some expeditions that found evidence that, well, they claimed they had talked to tribes that said that he had been killed pretty much right after he departed into the unmapped territory. But, I mean, this is just hearsay. But some tribes say that he was he was attacked and killed by hostile tribes in the area because a lot of them had never seen white men before. Hmm or Westerners before. So that was a, another idea. But he he was pretty good at dealing with those kind of uncontacted people. He had had run-ins with them before, and he always managed to get out of it. Um, but um, there were definitely hostile tribes. There was one expedition that went out to look for him that was uh, very well-funded. Um, he was a rich banker in 1996. It was um, James Lynch was his name, and he went out on an expedition into the same area Fawcett was last seen, and they were captured by a tribe, and the tribe was actually going to execute them by, now get this, jungle bees or piranhas. Oh, God. This is actually a thing, apparently, among this tribe. Jungle bees or piranhas was the method of execution they were going to use, and this understandably upset (laughs) and his son who were there looking for where Fawcett went, and they apparently bargained for their lives and offered up thousands, a couple, I think it was thirty or forty thousand dollars in supplies and equipment, and they got their release. 
Um, but that uh, definitely showed that there were tribes in the area that did, that did not appreciate visitors. Yeah. That was an expedition in 1996, and not that long ago. And um, I remember Lynch was saying that nobody's ever going to find out what happened to this guy. It's impossible, he said, uh, after his expedition. Um, but people, you know, people keep trying, and um, they keep uncovering these little clues um, yeah, that don't really, really lead anywhere. But I, I don't think that I don't think that anybody's ever going to find out exactly what happened to him. I mean, there were um, all kinds of stories of like uh, white natives and things like that running around out in the forest that are descendants of Fawcett. And there was even one story that they found a dog running around out there that was Fawcett's dog right after he disappeared. Um, all kinds of supposed evidence, but nothing conclusive, really. Yeah. Um, Very odd. Like I said before, yeah. people who claim to have filmed, you know, white natives out in the forest and things like that. Um, it's, 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 it's very, uh, very odd. It's one of these enduring mysteries that I think these missing persons mysteries, especially when they're tied to these lost cities in the middle of the Amazon are very, um, it's a very alluring story, you know. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very I intriguing stuff, yeah. Yeah, like you said, uh, we, we took a little mini break there uh, to up, up, update the recorder. And like you said, you could do a whole show on this Lost City of Z. I could probably do a whole show just on this story. <laughs> I'm giving you a bridge version here. Yeah, and even that's uh, rich with detail, so I really do appreciate it. <laughs> now, generally when we wrap up, uh, these conversations, and I really, first I want to just take a moment to thank you, dude. Uh, we've gone, between just sort of off-air off chatting and stuff, we've gone like three hours talking here, and I really do appreciate oh, it. Oh, wow. No um, problem, no problem. Yeah, yeah, and I know that it's like uh, Saturday afternoon in Tokyo now, so... Oh yeah, Saturday. It's a, it's it's no problem at all. I, I really, really do. No problem. I really enjoyed it. It went by really fast. I, I keep did. looking at the time, thinking, "Wow, is it already that time?" I told you I this before much. we set up the interview. <laughs> yeah, right. You said it's going to go by, and you were right. You were right. Um, um I, Generally, we sort of wrap up the program with like a "What's next for you?" And I know, uh, obviously, you're incredibly prolific, and there's always uh, new stuff coming from you on the Mysterious Universe website. But have you ever thought about putting this all together uh, in some kind of book? Because I think like a book of this of these Japanese stories would be, would just be just, you know, huge. It would be I've awesome. I've absolutely been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it uh, for a while now, actually. Um, L- Lauren Coleman has been, has been getting on my case to write a book for quite some time. You really should. Um, uh, he even said he would write a, a foreword for me, an, an, intro, an introduction. Um, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. It's just such an undertaking, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm doing the, the blogging, the articles on Mysterious Universe, and um, I've got an, my own full-time job. And I, I'm just wondering where I'm going to find the time. But mm. if, if I could, it just seems like such a massive undertaking. Lauren Coleman's told me, "Oh, you already have the material, basically. Just yeah, you do. Just, yeah." Uh, you know, take that and uh, maybe enhance it a little bit. Maybe add some more details and 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 do a book. So yeah, I'm definitely thinking about it. Uh, I would like to do something like that for sure. 
I can't sure. not, and uh, I cannot encourage you enough, man. I think that it would be huge and awesome, and and just a, an invaluable resource for folks out there, uh, the serious students of all this. You know, the folks who are listening to this, and the folks who are aware of your stuff. Uh, I would, I would love it. So please uh, give oh, it yeah. some thought, man. Well, look for it in the future because I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely entertaining that thought. I'm, 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 I plan to do it at some point. So. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Nice, for nice. Sure. If I, if I can, um, if I, if I, if I think I can do it right, and when I can do it right, I'll, I'll definitely do it. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of thought into that, and I'm, I'm, that's definitely on the cards. Well, you know, those of us who enjoy these stories are incredibly lucky that you're the one uh, putting them out there because your stuff is so good. You know what I mean? It's like there are a lot of people that are just bad writers. And it's like, thank God, thank God the guy who's found these stories and is putting them out there and researching them and, and, and detailing them for us is a good writer. It's like a double. We're, we're very lucky. I appreciate lucky. that very much. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's, it's very good to hear. It's very encouraging. Oh. And that's the kind of thing that makes me want to keep writing, you know, to keep putting out stuff, you know. I want to, I want to, yeah, that really makes me want to keep going mm. and keep thinking of interesting topics you know that people want to read and that will maybe hopefully connect with people and enthrall them like like it seems that has my articles have done for you and perhaps other other readers out there so yeah that's very encouraging to hear thank you very much for that oh no problem man i uh like i said i, I really do uh, appreciate all the time you've given us and your incredible work. It really is absolutely incredible. And like I said, uh, part of the reason, obviously, I wanted to explore this Japanese uh, culture and the stories from there, but I really just wanted to also, like, let folks know who listen to Banal of America that there's this guy out there that's doing amazing stuff. And because he's not like the other people in the paranormal who are on every third show you listen to, uh, a lot of people probably hadn't heard of you yet. So I hope that people go and check out your stuff at Mysterious. Well, I definitely hope so. Yeah, and it's over at Mysterious Universe, just, uh, or Google Brent Swanser, uh, Mysterious Universe, and you'll find it, folks. Go to Banal of America and punch in, uh, you'll see it right on the page. So that'll link you to, to, to Brent's archive. And, uh, on that note, again, Brent, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. I really do appreciate also that you chose Banal of America as your first interview. Uh, you gave us the chance That's here. It's an honor. Hopefully, uh, I lived up to all those nice things the folks were saying about me that encouraged you to come on the show. Oh, for sure, for sure. I hope I lived up to uh, your expectations as well. <laughs> oh, man, you were above and beyond. You really were. Uh, as I said uh, when we took a, a break there, you're a natural, man, and I look forward to getting you back on the program to uh, talk Thank about some other much. stuff. Let me just tease this for folks, you know, who who are – Wondering what, what what we might have missed here on the program, folks. This is because I said we picked out like 20, and uh, I actually jumped into the list of stuff that I hadn't dug into because it was just kind of the flow of the conversation. But some of the stuff that's, right, right. that you can look at, this is just from the cherry-picked 20, folks, that uh, that we didn't get to tonight. And there's over 150, as he said, uh, in the archive. Bizarre sewer-dwelling beasts of the world where the birds go to die. Uh, the amazing fall of a rodent utopia. Mysterious Disappearances at the Vatican. This one I put over huge on my Facebook a while back. I absolutely love this story. We'll love to do it next time you're on the program. The oh, cre- yeah, for sure. The, uh, the Creepy Masked Monkey Village. Woo! Oh, yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> one of my all-time favorites. Love that one. The Mysterious Unsolved Murders of Hinton Kafic Farm. So 
there's tons of them out there, folks, in Brent's archive, and all of them really are fantastically put together and, and really well-researched and enlightening. So, like I said, Brent, I cannot thank you enough for coming on BOA Audio, and I look forward to when we get you back on the program. Oh, it's great. I, I look forward to it, Tim. I, I was an honor to be here today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. There you have it, folks. That was Brent Swanser. Enormous thanks to Brent for coming on the program and giving us so much time, just an amazing amount of time. Truth be told, actually, we talked for like another half hour after the show and probably about 20 minutes before the show. So that was like a four-hour call to Japan. It was insane. And I really want to thank him. He cleared like his whole Saturday afternoon to talk to us. If you're just listening to this program for the first time and you want to know what we are, we are Banal of America. We've been around for a very, very long time. This is our ninth season, and uh, we've got an enormous archive you can find at banalofamerica.com. Pretty simple, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Just punch in Banal of America there. I try to post uh, news stories that connect to uh, previous episodes, if I can. I actually just did one a few days ago with regards to uh, the David Phoebe episode. But you got to get on BOA on Facebook to find out what I'm talking about. As I just alluded to, this was a four-hour phone call to Japan and uh, our third international program in a row. So the bill is going to be enormous when it arrives at BOA HQ. And... Uh, as you'll soon find out, we've got another international episode lined up coming at you soon, too. So th- it's going to be costly, folks. This uh, this international expedition we've been on this month is definitely going to be costly. So we need your help. That's the point I'm trying to make. There are two ways to help out the franchise. Either head on over to Banal of America and click the PayPal button. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a snail mail donation, there's also a P.O. Box address at BOA. So either one of those methods will uh, get your donation to us and help us pay for this ginormous phone bill that's going to be coming after the international expedition winds down. And as always, it bears repeating, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America Audio and Banal of America Proper to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Uh, I don't even know how to explain this, folks, because it's like a a (laughs) multi-timeline. It's like an episode of Lost, my friends, because I realized that this was going to be our third taped episode in a row, and I don't do the end cap part for the taped shows anymore, and people haven't heard from me in a while. Some other things have come up. We're on the, uh, what is it, the TuneIn Radio app. So head on over to Banal of America. There's a link there, or uh, I guess you can search for it on the TuneIn Radio app. Uh, TuneIn, really butchering this plug here for the TuneIn. That's how uh, ludic I am, my friends. Let me see here. I'll actually t- just go to TuneIn.com, right? Is That must be where it is, right, I presume. Let's see. <laughs> yes. Head on over to TuneIn.com and search for Banal of America. That way you'll be able to find us on there. I don't use it, so please don't write to me being like having a million technical support questions. I have no idea how it works. I'm a total Luddite. But people kept asking for it, and uh, if it makes it easier for people to listen to the show, 
go for it. Head on over to TuneIn.com. There's a link out also at Ben All of America with the uh, proper address for BOA on TuneIn. And I've already gotten requests for other apps that they people want us on. So if you have requests, send them to me, info at banalofamerica.com. And as long as it's not incredibly arduous, we'll try and get the show on those apps as well. You know, what's the point of doing a show if people can't hear it? So hopefully uh, getting it on the TuneIn app. Uh, we're working on Stitcher, whatever that is. We're going to try and get on that thing too. So, yeah, we'll get on some apps. Why not? And uh, as I alluded to, this is our third taped episode in a row, and you barely ever hear from me. You don't hear from me on these taped shows anymore because it's just too much work to tape these things. But then tonight, here I am, 24 hours after talking to Brent Swanser. You haven't even actually heard the Brent Swanser episode yet, folks. We're, we're, we're twisting timelines here. I realized I was going to sit down with next week's guest to tape uh, the episode for two weeks from today. Uh, ultra confusing. And I realized all of this, uh, that we haven't done an end of the show thing in a while. So I figured I would tape it now, paste it at the end of the Brent Swanser episode, and plug uh, next week's edition of the program, which I'm taping in a few moments. And that is with our guest, Carl Joseph DeMarco. He also goes by the name Thorny Bastard on the BOA forum. And we're really getting uh, pretty crazy with this one because Carl is a long-time BOA Audio listener who lives in China. He's been writing to me for quite some time, exchanging emails, thoughts on the program, and encouraging me to get guests on to talk about some of these Chinese myths and legends, along with our friend John Nera, who also is in China. John and Carl uh, have been encouraging me to get guests to talk about Chinese uh, myths and legends, and finally I put them to the test, and I was like, hey, man, you're in China. You find me somebody. And uh, we kind of all collectively came to the conclusion that Carl, who is a, a, he tells me, a masterful storyteller and a keen student of Esoterica, he, he kind of volunteered <laughs> to come on the show and talk about all these different, uh, all these different Chinese myths and yeah, legends yeah. that he could dig up over there in China. So it's kind yeah, of... It was, it, was, it, was, it was more like John rooked me into it. There you I go. Think. So John rooked okay. him into it. And... Uh, that's what you're going to hear on the next edition of the program, folks. I'm afraid I'm going to just start the show now, uh, start 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 the episode without closing out the last episode. So that's what you're going to hear on the next edition of the program. Carl Joseph DeMarco talking about Chinese myths and legends, very unique sort of situation. We've kind of like, um, as he said, you know, we've kind of, um, I don't even know the word, we kind of drafted him to be our, our correspondent in China and to look into all this stuff. It's... Uh, it's a pretty unique sort of uh, thing, but over the last couple of weeks, I've been pretty confident that Carl's dug up some good stuff over in China, and I'm looking forward to talking to him and looking forward to unleashing it on all the BOA Audio listeners in a couple of weeks. That's on the next edition of the program. So with all that said, Carl has patiently allowed me to do all that before uh, we start our conversation. I want to thank him, of course. I want to thank Brent Swanser for coming on the show and giving us an insane amount of time. I really do appreciate that, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the feedback from folks to the Brent Swanser conversation. And, of course, thank you to all of the great BOA audio listeners all around the world. You are the lifeblood of this program. You are the fuel that drives the mothership. Thank you so much for your enduring support of BOA audio. Until next time, this is Tim and all. Thanking you for listening. 
signing off.